Okay, take three. Maybe this will work. Today is Saturday, February 24th, 2018. Time for episode 47 of the Barnhart Podcast. No witty opening this week because we're going to be talking about a pretty serious topic. Um, something if, if you live in, actually, it doesn't matter where you live in the United, in the world. If you follow the news at all, you've heard about the school shooting in Florida, but we'll get back to that in a little bit. First, let's talk about some of the email feedback we've received. Um, how about you start out, Ian, with a, a email topic about solicitation? Yeah, um, was delighted to hear from Father Thursday, of course, the Barnhart Benefactor. Barnhart benefactor masses are now seven days a week, praise God, plus the requiem for everyone. Um, I think there's still some confusion out there about this requiem. It's not for just my benefactors. It's for absolutely everyone who dies in the previous week um, and, you know, is is in the church and is presumably in purgatory. And they get a proper requiem mass said for them. And um, none of these ridiculous, you know, Novus Ordo funerals where, you know, the, the deceased is declared to be an angel in heaven um, flitting around with a halo and a harp and, and wings. I mean, and it's some of them are literally that bad. Everybody gets a proper requiem now. Um, and is and there so an email we, address or a phone number or something they have to call to get listed for the for this mass? No, there is no email address, phone number, or anything else that needs to be done. It's just for everyone. It's just for everyone. So if if Aunt if Aunt Helen dies, Aunt Helen's in. Um, in fact, um, with regards to the school shooting, the youngsters in the school shooting, they're in. They got a requiem. Um, everyone who dies now gets a, a proper requiem, which every every Christian person deserves to have. And, and frankly, every human being on earth deserves to have. We, we would hope that, that the day will come when everyone gets a proper requiem. And eventually our Lord will come in glory to judge the living and the dead, and then there won't be any more death and there won't be any more funerals. And we're all obviously looking forward to that. But um, in the interstitial period, while we can, while we can, we have Father Requiem, who is um, traversing, as I said in the blog post, his ninth decade, no spring chicken. Um, he is he is offering the, the Requiem Mass every week. So we have Father Monday and Father Tuesday. Both are military chaplains, and um, they are both deployed. Please pray for them especially. They are deployed in Musloid territory, and they offer the holy sacrifice of the Mass on Mondays and Tuesdays for you all. Um, Fathers Wednesday and Thursday are just, you know, in the Western Hemisphere somewhere. We have one priest who's taken Friday, Saturday, and Sunday, and he has a little bitty church in a in a in a backwater, and so we'll call Fra- Father Friday, Friday, Saturday, Sunday. We'll refer to him as Father Backwater. Which and, when, when I saw um, that on the blog, it kind of threw me for a minute because, like, wait a minute, you're talking about the the military chaplains as Father Blackwater, and it's like, no, no I, I, I misassociated that. Nope, Father Backwater. And so I heard um, this past Thursday from Father Thursday, and this past Thursday was the Feast of the Chair of St. Peter. And he sent an email in, and he said, hello, very best on the Feast of the Chair. And he went on to talk about, and you can go to the website and read it, um, about 
our conversation in the last podcast about confession and specifically about these horror stories about going to confession and priests telling people to commit sins. Um, generally, it's in the context of the Sixth Commandment, but um, th- there's other ways that, that people, that priests tell people to commit sins, but um, specifically and the most common naturally in our, in this day and age, is telling people, yes, take the pill or the ho- the absolute horror story is these these horrific horrific infiltrator priests telling people to violate the sixth commandment in terms of fornication both heterosexual fornication and sodomy i've heard i've heard by now i've heard it all folks and yes it happens um and heard recently from a person who went to confession and had a horrible, horrible priest who told them that they, quote, just needed to get laid and that they would be better off for that. Um, And so Father Thursday sent in a a very um, succinct and clear email, and he said, quote, any priest who advises violating the sixth or ninth, ninth commandments is guilty of solicitation, that is, inducing the penitent into impurity. It doesn't have to be inducement into a sin with the priest himself. It can be any approval or encouragement to commit any sin of impurity. Solicitation, of course, still carries the penalty of suspension ad divinus and excommunication, late sentier, that is to say, no adjudication needed. Any penitent who encountered that kind of thing should rightfully inform the bishop or vicar general and then go straight to the sacred penitentiary in Rome if not satisfied with the response. Now, that is absolutely true, but we what we also have to acknowledge is that the church is so heavily infiltrated now, let Let's say, for example, you're living in just off the top of my head. Let's say you're living in the Archdiocese of Newark, New Jersey, and therefore Cardinal uh, Archbishop Tobin is is your um, is your bishop. And um, uh, and of course, everybody remembers um, Bishop Tobin, who uh, last night or two nights ago was apparently on a plane uh, getting ready to take off and decided that he was going to tweet someone and tweeted. He tweeted, of course, uh, plane getting ready to take off in 10 minutes. Nighty night, baby. I love you. Well, uh, and for people who, who huh. don't understand this, Twitter has the capability of doing direct messaging. So the idea being it's, it's more like text messaging where it's, it's a you know, supposedly private communication, but then again, nothing going through Twitter is totally private. Uh, Library of Congress can tell you all about this. But if you aren't careful about what you're, what you're doing, you can tweet to the world this whole tweet and everybody sees it. And it's not until after the fact you realize, oops, I just sent this out public, not direct private. So thank you for clearing that up. Um, my initial response was, well, we, we should call. We should get on the phone and we should call the chancery in Newark and, and we should make inquiries if Archbishop Tobin was in fact flying that night at, at approximately quarter after eight in the evening, et cetera, et cetera. And so I did. I did exactly that. I picked up the phone. I called the chancery. I asked to speak. Um, I asked for the cardinal's office. Um, I talked to the cardinal's secretary. She then um, immediately knew <laughs> what the gist of my call was about and transferred me to their public relations guy, who turned out to be a guy by the name of Jim Goodness, G-O-O-D-N-E-S-S. And um, let's just say that Mr. Jim Goodness is not, you know, dripping testosterone out of out of his every pore. Let's just put it that way. 
Um, Mr. Jim Goodness had already apparently spoken to several people about this and was incredibly grumpy, shall we say, um, and proceeded to tell me that um, the Cardinal Archbishop of Newark, who is 65 years old, was tweeting one of his sisters, the youngest of which is, I believe, 45 years old, and saying, nighty night baby, to which, in my mind, my response is bullshit. And I would, I think everybody, everybody who possibly can should be doing everything to find out what happened here. Because let's be honest, this guy is one of the most pro-sodomy um bishops, archbishops, and now, of course, named a cardinal by guess who, our, um, anti-Pope Bergoglio, given the red hat, this guy is one of the most pro-sodomy bishops in the world. And that's saying something, ladies and gentlemen, that's saying something. Um, dollars to donuts, and it is completely reasonable, and it is completely logical, and it is completely appropriate looking at how militantly pro-sodomy this man is, Tobin, to say, you know, I think there's a really good chance that this man is, engage- is engaging in some sort of a sick, disgusting relationship with, one- with someone, the kind that, you know, perhaps cries out to heaven for God's vengeance. I don't believe that most people, especially if you look at, at Tobin's Twitter account, I mean, he, he tweets like six times a year or something like that. There's nothing there. The, the entire first page that you can see when you pull up his Twitter feed, um, I think you, you get back into 2016 just looking at the top, the top eight or so uh, most recent tweets. You're telling me that this guy is using this as a direct messaging platform with a first-degree relative? Uh, I, I don't buy that. Um, if, if, Tobin, if Tobin was tweeting nighty-night baby to his sister, uh, I think that has about the same likelihood that Anthony Weiner was tweeting the pictures of himself to, to his nieces, you know? I mean, I, I'm, I'm not buying this at all. And the fact that this Jim Goodness character was just instantly nasty, insulting. In fact, what he said to me was, he said, um, he said, the, the arch, the, the Cardinal tweeted that to his sister. And yes, you can quote me on that. Um, because, and you can tell all of the other crazy people or whatever he, I mean, he was instantly insulting and he was also, you know, like I said, not exactly dripping testosterone out of his every pore. I've got to get so, you a phone recorder because it sounds like you have some fun conversations. Oh man, I was kicking myself. I was like, why I, sh- I should have recorded this somehow. Um, I think I do. I think when we were, when we were first starting the podcast, we were trying to figure out if I should record it on my end and you record it and then you could mix it together. But you figured out how to do all that. No, very we, easily. We've got a good so. enough audio quality just, just with, with how you're doing it now. But I was going to say that uh, I, I keep Skype around for making phone calls for that purpose because you can record it pretty easily. But um, it, it's it's something where if you'd have known ahead of time. Yeah, absolutely. In, in, I fairness, mean, I just, in fairness, you just you just have to say, I'm, I'm recording this. And of course, at that point, they're not going to say anything interesting. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So 
it's a it's a give and take. But if if nothing else, I mean, I wouldn't have replayed it back on the internet. I would have just been able to take down an exact direct quote. But he was insulting crazy people like you. That's that, that's a verbatim quote. Crazy people like you. Um, yeah, you're you're just a little bit too defensive there, sweetheart. And I think we all know why. Um, you've got one of the most pro sodomy prelates in the church today. This guy's is you know communication secretary or whatever. I mean, come on, come on. We've we've talked about this before. Who you work for matters. Who you associate yourself with matters. It matters a lot, and it is very very informative. And so that's my little story about um, uh, Bishop Tobin and and all of this stuff. Where what was the initial question? What were oh, we talking about? about? How did we even of, get on uh, this? Confession and solicitation. Confession, solicitation. So Father Thursday's reply is absolutely brilliant, and it's very true. And what if you just stop and think about what Father Thursday said about how any solicitation by the priest. For someone to engage in any sin of impurity against the sixth or ninth commandment, ladies and gentlemen, consider how many people over the last 50 years, and it's, it's, it num- the numbers are staggering in, in the Western Hemisphere, in Western Europe especially, how many of these people have been told by priests in the confessional that it's okay to contracept. So telling married couples that it's okay to contracept, and we just had this discussion a few weeks ago. If you are, if you contracept uh, either chemically or uh, mechanically, uh, that is to say any sort of a device, a condom, um, um, and getting your tubes tied, um, guys getting a vasectomy, anything like that, all of the all of the marital embraces that a husband and wife engage in after that are are mortally sinful. You're engaging in an illicit um, sex act that falls under the the category header of sodomy, as specifically the sin the sin of onanism. And so, think about this now: how many people have been told by priests in the confessional? Um, go ahead and have contracepted sex. And that that's the most mild. How many people have been told in the confessional, oh, of course it's okay to have sex before marriage. How many people have been told in the confessional, you know, you were born that way, you owe it to yourself to have an authentic engagement of your sexuality. You need to figure yourself out. Go ahead. I know, I know people who have told me that they were told that. Yes, I know people who are both ex-gay and people who were who have same-sex attractions who have never acted on them. By the grace of God, despite being told by priests, you owe it to yourself. Um, you can't you can't become an authentic adult until you have actually authentically engaged your sexuality. How many people have been told? Oh, this is a huge one. How many how many boys have been told? that masturbation is not a, is not a sin it's completely natural don't worry about it okay think about what this means now these priests are are suspended ad divinus and excommuted um latesentier so without any adjudication now what what does this mean let's be clear what does this mean god knows this okay god knows the state of these priests we are not donatus these this does not invalidate any of their sacraments, but it makes 
it makes it illicit. So when they offer the holy sacrifice of the mass, just by virtue of the fact that they have committed these crimes of solicitation inside the confessional, God knows this because, you know, the confessional is, is sealed, obviously. The, the penitent knows this, but we presume that the penitent is so uncatechized in most cases that they don't realize what's gone on here. They just think, well, father told me this, so it must be true. He must, he must have been taught correctly in seminary. He must have been. My goodness, he, he even went to a pontifical university in Rome. He, there's no possible way that he could tell me something that was completely and totally against the Catholic faith. I mean, this is, this is the level of naivete that so many people are dealing with. Um, and it was, it was worse, obviously, back in the, 19, the 1970s, because these people were kids before the asteroid hit where the church was still, you know, orthodox and there was still some respectability there. And so the asteroid hit, people don't, people didn't realize immediately what had happened. And so when father's telling them this in the confessional, of course, it's okay to contracept. Rome is wrong on this. It's going to change. Of course, you can contracept. Um, They're assuming in good faith that the priest actually knows what he's talking about and isn't just, you know, a filthy, disgusting heretic who is inciting them into sins, mortal sins of impurity. Um, so it makes when he said when Father says the mass, obviously it's illicit because he has he has inflicted this on himself. But we're not Donatists, you see, and God does not hold any of us responsible for the interior state of any of these priests. So even though this penalty is upon them, it's only upon them and the state of their soul and what happens when they die. So, you know, to stop and think about how many priests who have died since the asteroid hit in, let's call it the early to mid 1960s, think of how many priests have died and all of the all of those masses that they that they offered over all of the decades that were sacrilegious because they themselves were were excommunicated latessentiae and they were suspended ad divinus but of course they don't they don't believe in any of this the, the point of these terms is that it's on the priest's soul think how many priests are in hell right now just just within the last 50 years all these priests that have died over the last 50 years who have rejected the church's teachings and have lied to people in the confessional and incited them to Im- to impurity and mortal sin we have to think that those priests are almost certainly many of them are almost certainly in hell because they died unrepentant they didn't they they never acknowledged the fact that they were that they were heretics. They didn't care. They died immersed and prideful in these sins and in these heresies. It's a terrifying thing to think about. But once again, reiterating, we are not held responsible ever for knowing the interior state of the soul of any priest. You can't know. God doesn't hold us responsible. Now, there are certain things that that priests and bishops can do that make it very clear that they are wildly unsound. But when they when they celebrate the holy sacrifice, um, provided they, you know, they don't 
completely uh, change the words of consecration or something like that. Some something that's that's obvious, or you know, they're using pizza and Pepsi as as the as the species of of the host and the chalice. Obviously, that invalidates a mass. But as long as they don't do that, our Lord comes, but he's angry. And he's angry because the priest that is offering the holy sacrifice is, is suspended out of Venus. He's, I mean, he's a, he's a, he's a heretic. He's, he's inciting people to sin, but he still comes. Why does he still come? He still comes because he loves us. He still comes because he loves us and he, there's nothing, there's hardly anything that, it, that can keep him from coming. I mean, the hoops that a priest has to jump through to invalidate a mass are significant. And there are people out there um, who are going to receive our Lord in Holy Communion at that mass. And our Lord wants wants them to receive him. There are people who are going to stop into the church and who are going to genuflect to the tabernacle in which those hosts, which are consecrated by that priest, are reposed, and he wants to be there. It's love, 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 love. Christ puts up with all of this sacrilege from all of these priests and bishops, and he comes down on the altar, and he... he takes the form, he transubstantiates the host so that it is, it is his body, blood, soul, and divinity, and he puts up with the sacrilege of the priest or bishop that's offering the holy sacrifice because of love, because he, he wants to be with us. He, and so you cannot fall into this mindset. You go to a mass where Cardinal Tobin is the celebrant, and you look at what he said and done publicly over the last year, year and a half with regards to sodomy, with regards to talking about female ordination, wanting there to be female cardinals. I mean, at this point, there's public evidence that this this guy in his does not he does not believe in some of the most basic tenets of the Catholic faith. But you know what? He's still a priest. It's an indelible mark. He's still a bishop. It's an indelible mark. And so when he offers the holy sacrifice, provided he says the words of consecration, because our Lord loves the world, for God so loved the world um, and loves the world, our Lord comes down on the altar. So please remember that. If there's any benefit to the Mass in English as it exists in the majority of parishes— in the world, well, in the United States and everywhere else that English is spoken, is that you can at least hear what the the celebrant is saying. In the, in the case of uh, Cardinal Tobin, uh, when he says mass, they, he's wearing a lapel mic, and if, if my understanding is correct, in the new mass, the priest says out loud the words of consecration, so you can tell yes. whether or not he says the correct words, as opposed to uh, a priest of bad faith. Who is, who is praying the old mass rather than uh, praying the, the words of consecration, he could just be uttering blasphemies at that point instead of saying anything that's actually in the missal and no mm-hmm. sacrifice, no transubstantiation would take place and nobody would know it except maybe if he had a couple eagle-eared listeners uh, or servers on the altar who, who either didn't hear him say it because the priest is supposed to say the words loud enough to be heard at least by the servers. Right. I, I don't know the exact rules, how many meters away from the priest he has to be able to be heard or feet or cubits or whatever it was denominated in. But... He, the, the point is that in the old mass, there's, there's so much that goes into uh, forming the intention of the priest by the words and the pri- that, that the priest has to say that it's really hard unless you actively are going to blaspheme our Lord and that's your intention the whole time. It's really hard to not confect the sacrament, whereas in the new mass, it's a lot easier. But at least when you have the benefit for the people sitting in the pews, you can hear what he's saying. Because, yeah, exactly. Because that's the rubrics a- say to say it nice and loud. 
I'm glad you said that because that's a re- that brings up a really good point about indefectibility and how, in a certain sense, um, you know, the mass of Paul the Sixth, the the Novus Ordo, as it is called, is actually a testament to the indefectibility of the church because you would think that if Satan and these Freemasons and these Sodomites get in, they get their way, they're they're going to promulgate a mass. Um, don't you think they would do it in such a way that it would either invalidate the mass or make it really easy to invalidate the mass, like you just said? And in fact, it it didn't. It it, it there's this amazing um, defense mechanism that's actually a you know a backdoor inclusion of the Novus Ordo rite itself, and that is that the priest is saying the words of consecration loud and amplified and all that. That's a great point. I, n- I never thought about that before. To me, it's just another proof set in, in this very strange way that you look at the Novus Ordo, and because it's still valid, um, it's, it's a proof set of the indefectibility of the church, that even when the enemies promulgate a rite, it's still valid and our Lord still comes and there's still graces flowing through it. Now, obviously not nearly as many, sadly, um, largely because of what the Novus Ordo rite does to the, the disposition of the people assisting at that mass and, and certainly of the priests offering that mass themselves. It makes the priest, you know, the center of attention, narcissistic, um, the people, it, it's, it's so banal that it just dumbs everything down. It tricks, it tricks the Catholic faithful into believing basically Protestant dogmas, um, it essentially the, the the first and foremost that the mass is not a sacrifice and denying of the real presence, the implied denial of the real presence, but the real presence is still there because the church is indefectible. Well, it makes me think something that came to mind while we, while you were describing the fact that even in the Novus Ordo, and forgive me for for people who found that offensive the way I worded that. I'm a lifelong trad as much as I can remember anyway. Um, that. In, in the Novus Ordo, you still have the valid confection of the sacrament, but it, the, the way you were referring to it reminded me of something I heard in a podcast earlier, earlier this week. Uh, there was the discussion of the various titles of Our Lady. It's like, what difference does it make when you pray to Our, Our Lady under different titles? It's still the same person. And it made me think about the Blessed Sacrament confected under these circumstances, the difference between, say, um, the Solemn High Mass prayed by a, a priest who is a saint, but just not metaphysically qualified yet. He hasn't died yet, who mm-hmm. has intense love. You could almost say that in that moment when the, the sacrament is, is, is confected, you're looking at um, our Lord. To, to take a couple of phrases from the, the litany of the Sacred Heart, it's heart of Jesus of infinite majesty. And, mm-hmm. and that's the sense. As opposed to in situations where it's valid, but perhaps illicit, or illicit, you're looking at mm-hmm. heart of Jesus obedient unto death, pierced with yeah. a lance, source of all consolation, scourged and, and whipped for our sins and offenses. Absolutely. Oh yeah, that's that's absolutely beautiful. Yep. It's is it is it him in glory, reigning? Is it him? You know, transfigured? Is it him? Yeah, that's that's absolutely beautiful. And what most Novus Ordo masses are, sadly, is our Lord at the pillar or our Lord nailed to the cross. Well said, well said. But it also brings to point uh, something earlier. Uh, we, we need to pray for the priests. I mean, they, they, are, they are the vector of, of uh, for, for us be, to have our sins forgiven, to, to receive the sacraments. 
and licitness versus validness. I mean, even the priest who has been laicized and kicked out of of the of the of orders. Uh, we, we mentioned the the um, now cardinal in in South Africa or South South America who was recommended by uh, I want to say the CDF that he be laicized. Even in a situation, even have that. Oh, happen. just a bishop. He's just a bishop. Yes. Mm-hmm. Just a bishop. <laughs> yeah. That's pretty bad. Yeah. But the the point being that um, the, these are even if he had been laicized, uh, then he cannot um, licitly confect any sacrament uh, ever again. However, he still has the valid orders. That's for life. That's for, I mean, that's for eternity. That that character of the soul and the powers that come with it are for eternity. So if, and for example, uh, somebody who is laicized and repentant, I'll just, I'll give them the benefit of the doubt for this example, comes across a situation of a, a car accident and somebody's in the process of bleeding out mm-hmm. and, and, and uh, the person is crying, I wish there was a priest, I wish there was a priest. This person can validly say, I can give you confession. Yeah. Because the, the church always... Uh, supplies jurisdiction and authority in situations where the salvation of a soul is in danger. And at the point of death is the textbook example of where even somebody who has been um, excommunicated, uh, suspended, laicized, given double secret probation, whatever um, has has been levied against them in a legal sense by the church, mm-hmm. they always, you know, the, the mercy of God extends to the very end. And even that imperfect um, tool of, of God's justice is efficient is, is sufficient to 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 save someone's soul if necessary. So mm-hmm. uh, it just it reminds me all the more we need to pray for priests because you know if they are if they're going off the tracks like this and we talked about lack of catechism catechesis uh, of American Catholics or just Catholics in general these days you know priests come from the ranks of the Catholics and if they're not catechized very well before they go to seminary there's no guarantee they're going to be you know that's going to be made up for. In seminary, I mean, there, there's any number of people who, when they, when they go to, you know, athletes come to mind, when they go to college to, to um, play semi-professional, I mean, amateur athletics, they get remedial reading, remedial mathematics, stuff that typically you would get in fifth, sixth, seventh grade, but, you know, they devoted their whole life to playing basketball. Uh, it's that not every college will do that, and not every seminary is going to assume that they need to do such remedial levels of, of theology and philosophy and, and catechism. So well, I'll, I'll even take it a step further from what I've learned of, from talking to priests and seminarians over the last several years as my, you know, work has moved more towards this this situation that's that's happening in the church. I think it's fair to say that if young men today enter Novus Ordo Seminary and they are too Catholic, in fact, they do have a firm foundation they do know the actual catechism and what the church teaches and believe what the church teaches and have any sort of piety at all. They are either thrown out or they have it scandalized and beaten out of them. So, for example, you can't say, well, you know, a, a young man gets sent to seminary and then gets sent to Rome and studies and gets his degree at at the Greg or the Angelicum or any of the other pontifical universities pontifical universities in Rome. Well, he must have been taught Catholicism. Well, no, actually, especially at like the Greg. No, at the Ange, you know, the the um, Pontifical University of Thomas Aquinas, it's the best one. It's the best one in Rome. The, the Greg is is absolutely riddled with heretics and has been for years. When you say it's and, the best one, is that like the absolute best among elites or the tallest uh, among midgets? Well, you know, these days, tallest among the midgets, you know, it's it's still that these universities, they're cruising on nothing but but, you know, 
prestige from centuries and centuries and centuries ago. And it's just quote unquote sexy and it sounds good because it's in Rome. Um, these places, especially the Greg, the the liturgical pontifical university, the um, the University of, of St. Anselm, the Anselmianum, just riddled, riddled with heretics and sodomites. And if you roll in there, you have to and you don't have a firm foundation and you're a young man who can be easily swayed and you aren't you aren't solid in your faith. Well, they'll turn they turn these guys into heretics all the time. And so it's even worse than that. Um, the good, the guys who go in with any sort of Catholicism um, oftentimes come out of seminary, that is Novus Ordo Seminary, um, in much, much, much worse shape than they went in. It makes me wonder at times whether or not you would find the rosary more frequently in a Novus Ordo Seminary or in the Byzantine Church, which gets to another topic of the emails, by mm, the way. Mm. We got more feed, we've gotten more feedback from the topic of talking about the Orthodox and the Byzantine than anything since Bitcoin. So I think we're going to have to, <laughs> I, was, I was joking, we need to find a way to combine these topics. Like, I don't know, the Patriarch of Moscow in, initiating his own cryptocurrency for funding his church. I don't know. <laughs> Episode 48 of the Barnhart Podcast. We, we haven't done financial Watch, watch us while. break the internet. That one's going to have uh, s- set a record for, for listens on, on the internet. <laughs> I, I saw something recently that some uh, Russian nuclear scientists got in trouble because they found out, uh, like Moscow, somebody found out, the party found out, somebody found out that they they were uh, using a lot of the, the uh, computer uh, server sets that they were supposed to be using for research were mining cryptocurrency. And so hmm. these guys got in trouble. Yeah, these are the guys who are supposed to be maintaining uh, nuclear secrets and, and developing the next generation of, of uh, Russian nuclear warheads or whatever it is they do in their, nu- their nuclear research. Uh, they were mining crypto coins, I guess. So yeah, How about maybe, that? Maybe, maybe that's how they were trying to fund their research. I don't know. It, it's kind of weird. But it, it, yeah, we got several emails about um, people saying that either loudly um, antagonistic uh, that we don't have the first clue of what we're talking about. Uh, just just saying that you know we shouldn't talk about orthodox because you, know, you the, you're the, y'all are the people who are wrong. Which you know I'm start scratching my head thinking, okay, are you on your second or third wife? Because you're protesting wow. way too much. <laughs> it's funny because it's true. Well, it's I don't know. I'm just I'm just true. guessing. It's 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 symptomatic of a case when somebody is so. Um, easily agitated about something like this, it is frequently the case that there is some error they don't want to let go of, whether it's consciously they, they know the error. Um, you know, I, I've, I've read some accounts or remember from sermons talking about the, the, um, the missionary priests who would, who would convert the Native Americans and other savages, you know, non-civil, non whatever, the, converting the people they met uh, who, who had mm-hmm. not seen Christianity. The ones that had the hardest problem were the ones that didn't want to give up polygamy. You know, sins yep. of the flesh. This, this yep. you think it was any accident that Our Lady of Fatima said that sins of the flesh are the number one reason why people go to hell? Nope, not um, at all. And and you see it every single day. I see it in the email box. Super nerd gets a touch of it, but most of the, a lot of the emails that come in are addressed just to me and not to podcasts. But in this last episode, um, we did get quite a few that were addressed to podcast. But yeah, these emails that come in about the six commandment stuff, the the hate mail, the angry angry stuff, it's it's people not wanting to give up some sort of six commandment sin. Um, just how dare you, how dare you, how dare you. And then also, you know, perusing around the internet and seeing things get syndicated and about me, you know, I look on the, um, sometimes I watch the stats 
And you'll just see, oh, you'll see when somebody links to you and you'll see like, oh, okay, here's, you know, right now in real time, there's seven people who have just linked in from this and such website. And you say, oh, I'll go take a take a look at whatever that is. And a lot of these these blogs will have comment threads and you you can read what's being written about oneself. And um, boy, the, the absolute scathing seething hatred that comes out is from people who do not want to stop engaging in some sort of illicit sex act, period, full stop, be it pornography and masturbation, be it they are in an, uh, you know, an adulterous fake marriage and don't want to be hearing about that. Um, Obviously, contraception, how dare you, how dare you, how dare you, how dare I not? How dare I not? I'm in this position. How dare I not? I could, if I could help one person, and I've already received multiple emails, so I know that I, I have gotten to at least one person who stopped doing something, some sin against the sixth commandment, after reading or hearing an explanation as, okay, this is a sin, and here's why. Let me tell you. Okay, so if I'm in this position to do this, and I don't do it, the question isn't how dare you, the question is how dare I not. And that is a dare that I am not willing to take, because the the stakes of that dare are heaven or hell. And so if it's tell you the truth, or just turn and look the other way and not say anything, um, I'm sorry, but that, that isn't even a question. The answer is you have to say something, you have to do something. This is a question of virility. And this is kind of a segue that might get into a later discussion about standing around and doing nothing while kids are getting shot up. But it's, 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 the, it's, the, same, it's the same sort of idea. There's people out, all of you guys out there listening, people out on the street. They're, in a sense, getting quote-unquote shot up. And if you have the ability to do something to help mitigate that, even if it's just one person, you need to act. You need to be virile. You need to speak up. You need to say something. Go ahead. In the case of these people who don't want to give up whatever attachment they have, and and for whatever reason, if they don't think there's anything wrong with them, then let me encounter you in dialogue where you are, to borrow a phrase from somebody. Um, Think about what you're saying here is you are so attached to a creation that you don't want to give it up for anything there. Even, even for the things that are not overtly sinful, you know, eating chocolate chip cookies. If you are so attached to a material thing, you have turned your back on the creator and that's not a good thing. If you can't walk away from this and saying, Hey, whatever is best, that's what I want to pursue. Not the inferior. That's something to think about. What's what's so tricky in all of this is that what we're talking about is trying to make people understand that they have to put God ahead of their spouse or, you know, let's say they're in some sort of a either a fornicating outside of marriage relationship or one of these fake adulterous second, third marriages, whatever. Um, And what the thing that's so incredibly difficult is to make people understand that you have to put God you have to put God ahead of that person. And their, their counter argument is, well, I love this person so much. I, I'm, and, you know, all of, the, all of the novels and all of the movies and all of the television shows for my entire life has said that you should, you should just 
be in love with this person and you'll 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 sacrifice everything absolutely everything for them including going to hell is what the implication of all of that is sometimes i wonder if the victorian ideas of romance and jane austen have sent more people to hell than some other sins I actually, I'm not kidding. I had this conversation like 48 hours ago and they, and the point was made that with the advent of novels and all of this, that you, you just set up this incredibly unhealthy dynamic. Um, you know, first of all, getting into other people's psychologies by, by novels written in the first person, let's say, and getting into people's heads and not maintaining the, the position as just a, a, a spectator onto a story or a play where there is a a psychological distance between you and the characters what novels tend to do is drag um is tend to drag the reader into the psychology of the characters in the novel and and, and mix it all up say again passive acquiescence as well passive acquiescence and all of this these unhealthy dynamics and it's also what it's done in, in terms of the romant the romantic stuff and you know I'm obviously I think I think people should be in love with and should love the people love the person that they're married to and, and it's a tragedy when it either isn't that way from the beginning or it um, people you know fall obviously they fall out of love with each other and some people even sadly end up hating each other that that you know are married to each other um, even before they get to hell. Um, but the notion that all of these, um, secular novels and so forth, and now motion pictures have set up is that, you know, the, for, I'm sorry, but for lack of a better word, the sex partner is, is in a sense, uh, not, not the deity because the Freemasons want everyone to believe that you yourself are the deity, but that maybe the sex partner is some sort of a, um, a co-deity or, or something like that, you know, just taking God out of all of it and putting the sex partner at the very top of, of the hierarchy. Well, the people and who so, will use others are putting themselves. I mean, I don't think they could honestly tell their their partner that they love themselves less than the other person. And I've used the phrase before. I mean, if you can't honestly tell your spouse or or partner or the equivalent person, anyone really, if you can't tell them that I love you less than God and more than myself, there's something wrong. There's a mm-hmm. disordered situation in play. And if you're the kind of person who will not deny some physical pleasure, you are loving yourself before your partner and God, you are making yourself God. You are technically you're doing this through the sixth commandment, but you're in the process of working your way toward denying the first commandment and put making yourself your own God at that point. Right, exactly. And it's, this is all really come to fruition over the last 200, 250 years. Some people might call the French revolution, the beginning of the end with all of this. Um, that's certainly when, um, French culture and then by extension, English culture, which was always desperately trying to copy whatever was popular in French culture. You can see it in the fashions. It's one of, one of the reasons, one of the things that has always made me uncomfortable when watching a lot of the Jane Austen, um, um, novels put to film is that 
what those women would wear back in the very early days of the 19th century. So like from, you know, 1795 to 1815, what was very, very popular in in terms of female fashion were these extremely low cut dresses. They would have empire waists. And so, you know, it would be formless. It would almost just be a straight, you know, drop all the way down to the ankles. And it was all the way down to the ankles. But the boobs would just be hanging out. If I can just, you know, call a spade a spade. These women would have their bosoms just hanging out of these dresses. And that was all a French Revolution fashion that then carried over into England. And it was the big it was the big rage right at the time of all the Jane Austen works. And I always hated watching that because I was there was it was so strange that there was all of these you know, social uh, dynamics between men and women and what Austin was all about was commentating on all of these, you know, uh, traditions and, and, you know, the woman has to have this and the man has to do that and blah, da, 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 da. And there's all this modesty and all of this, you know, essentially kind of in a sense game playing, you know, and all of this modesty and yet these women are walking around in these dresses with their boobs hanging out. And I, it, it always, it's ever since I was a little kid, it just struck me as really weird and just nonsensical. But that's what it is. It comes from the French Revolution, which was just awful and terrible and godless and one of the most horrible things that has ever happened. And if you haven't watched my video presentation on the Vendée genocide, please do. I think it's still on my YouTube channel. And if not, it's been mirrored many, 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 many times. If you just type in my name, Anne Barnhart and Vendee, V-E-N-D-E-E, it'll come right up. Um, and it talks about the French Revolution and how, it, which was Freemasonic and just thoroughly, thoroughly evil and satanic and how the fall of Western Europe, a lot of it can be traced right back to the French Revolution. And actually sitting on my desk right now, I'm picking it up, looking at it, is uh, the DVD, The War of the Vendée, The Forgotten Martyrs, The French Revolution by, I think it's Novice Pictures. Um, have you seen that one? Is that the one that that's casted entirely with children or is that a, another one? I haven't seen it yet, but it's, uh, yeah, it's Navis Pictures. So that's uh, Jim Morlino's uh, group out of, out of New England. So I, I'm pretty sure this is the one you're thinking of, but uh, yeah. I guess we'll have to get back with a movie review on that one later. Absolutely. So yes, um, working our way through the <laughs> the five minute opening of the podcast uh, for all yeah. y'all who want long podcasts. Congratulations, you got a good one here. Um, speaking- <laughs> so we're talking about the Byzantines and they're emailing in, and oh, we did hear from a lot of people. Thanks, thanks for letting us know. By the way, they were not angry and had very nice emails and assured us that in many many Byzantine parishes, parishes that yes, indeed, the Rosary is being prayed. So that was really cool to hear. Thank you all for sending in on that. Absolutely. And um, I mentioned before the podcast that today is the anniversary of my baptism. So that's Hooray! something else I'm celebrating today. Very nice. Now, don't don't give away any um, personal information here in terms of birthday or anything like that. Why? Because traditionalists usually baptize close to their birth? Uh, <laughs> my family wasn't in trad land yet, so I'm, I'm not giving much away there. <laughs> okay. All right. So today is not your birthday. Oh, heavens or- no. Heavens no. Heavens no, heavens no. All right, good to know. No, it's just it's just the date that matters in terms of eternity. So indeed, it's your real birthday. Yes. Well, it's your, well, yeah, it's your real birthday, and then sometimes the day of your death is also referred to as the day that you were born into heaven. It could be later today. I don't know. I just hope I get the it podcast up first. 
In Indeed. which case, Indeed. pray for me, darn it. I need it anyway. So um, <laughs> speaking of podcasts, um, somebody noticed some, another email that came in this last week. Uh, somebody noticed me making reference to another podcast I've been listening to and wanted a, uh, wanted to know some other podcast uh, and, and audio resources of, of Catholic content to listen to. They are in their car for work three hours a day, apparently. And so, you know, they, apparently this, the really long form versions of our podcast, they listen to them twice a day. I, that's what I took from the email. But um, so I, I, I put together a, a, a list of stuff just based on what I subscribe to and listen to. And, and uh, I, I started putting together a blog post. Um, I'll put together I'll, I'll put a link in the in the show notes for this one. It's, it, I'm, work, I'm working on putting together a blog post, a more comprehensive list of Catholic uh, podcasts and audiobooks and um, non podcast audio resources. So there are pages out there like Father Ripperger's content. There's no podcast feed for that one. You just have to keep checking the website to see if there's something new and listen to it. But uh, I, I figure that's a pretty good resource that that's, you know, I've made use of it a lot as well. So um, I'll, we'll put a link to this out there. So if you see something that's missing from the list, uh, go ahead and just inject it uh, or write something in, into the, in, into the document and I can add it or contact you and explain why this, this is not something I'm going to put in there. But uh, I figure this is, this is a good resource for folks to listen to because, you know, it, as nice as Anne's voice is, there is other content on the internet of Catholic content. So I uh, wanted to put that out there. Yes, indeed. As nice as my voice is. Uh, I wish. Well, I, I, <laughs> yes. I, I do do the, the equalization boost on, on your voice there. So it, indeed. it sounds better in the final product than what I'm hearing in my ear right now. So Okay. <laughs> oh, I'm sorry. Well, think of it as a Lenten penance that you have to listen to my um, un, unequalized, is that the correct word? Unequalized, raw, shrieking harpy voice. Ha ha. I'll say unequalized, but not unbalanced. Although I'm sure there are plenty oh, of emailers who would t- take issue with that. Okay, I think we've delayed the main topic long enough. Uh, a couple okay. of weeks, a couple of weeks ago, uh, somebody walked into a, a school in Florida and killed 17 people. Um, unfortunately, we have this trend of school shooters happening with uh, somewhat regular, somewhat regular occurrences happening here in the United States, and there are a number of. Uh, sociological, religious, and and other reasons. I mean, how long can a country go aborting three thousand people a day and and sanctioning vices like sodomy and 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 all all sorts of other vices and not have things like this happen? It's 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 more of a surprise to me that we don't have blood running in the streets for other reasons, just due to the sins that we commit on a daily basis as a nation. So the fact it's only once or twice a year is actually a big mercy when you think about it. But um, one of the other things that comes to mind here, I mean, there are so many things to talk about. Was there anything you wanted to bring up first topic wise with regard to this shooting? Um, the first thing I, I, I think I got two or three emails from people when it there was some sort of a rumor going around that the shooter um, had was born with fetal alcohol syndrome or something like that. He, I think he was adopted and there was some thought that his birth mother was an alcoholic while she was pregnant with him and he was born with fetal alcohol syndrome and that's why he was crazy. Well, and it, the, it's, the, it's the, definitely beyond dispute that he was adopted by uh, the family that he, with whom he was raised. And another thing too, every time there's anything like this, the conspiracy theorists come out of the walls. Oh, so there, yeah. there's probably, um, and the reason I'm pointing interjecting at this point is because I had seen that point also, but it was a disputed point as in, in terms of, whether or not, I mean, I'd, I'd seen somebody saying the kid was was the was the product of a, of a Russian woman who drank vodka every day or something like that. It's just completely off the wall. It's like, where are your facts, dude? I mean, adoption well, records I mean, are sealed for a why, reason. 
that's why I bring this up because it doesn't matter. The point of these people's emails that they were saying is, well, look, look, this kid had fetal, fetal alcohol syndrome. Yeah, so th- he needs to be thrown in a loony bin. That doesn't that doesn't change anything. That doesn't mitigate anything. Why is he on these why is he on these antipsychotic drugs? Is it because he had fetal alcohol syndrome? Is it because of this? Is it because of that? Is it because of the other? At a certain point, it doesn't matter. Crazy people are crazy and they need to be put in a sane asylum in insane asylums or mental hospitals. Um, so you can't just say whether this is true, whether this is accurate or not, that this kid had fetal alcohol syndrome. At this point, what does it matter? All that matters is that the kid was nuts and there's been all kinds of reportage now about how deep and widespread the knowledge of this this kid's absolute insanity was. Yes. Uh, there have been numerous... <laughs> make a note right there. <laughs> yeah, I got it. Gotcha. <laughs> no, I, I expected you to go on for five minutes. Okay. Three, two. Yes. There, there were 23 calls, uh, for service to the Broward County Sheriff's 18 naming this kid by name. Mm-hmm. And, uh, there, there were issues reported to the FBI. There were issues reported to, I want to say the state of Florida also. Uh, and the, in fact, the, the stuff referenced to the FBI, I want to say there were two or three of them. It is, yeah. it's not like there was any lack of, of, um, warning signs here. In fact, I want to read a quote. I only find the right one here. Um, quote, the kid exhibited every single known red flag from killing animals to having a cache of weapons to disruptive behavior, to saying he wanted to be a school shooter, said a Broward County public defender. If this isn't a person who should have gotten somebody's attention, I don't know who it is. This was a multi-system failure. And, and like I mentioned, Broward County sheriffs, they had, they had been contacted 23 times about this guy. The FBI had been notified. There's a point to be made here about firearms. And of course, the left want to say, this is you know a textbook case of why we need to round up all firearms or increase laws you know restricting the ability to buy firearms. No. No, no, it isn't. It has nothing to do with that. And I think um, there's another quote that I'm going to read. This was made by, you know, some blog commentator called The Organ Muse at a website or a blog called The Morning Rant. I don't think it can be said any better than this. So I'm just going to read this quote. So now we know that the Parkland shooter was known to the local police who did nothing. He was known to the FBI who did nothing. His unstable behavior was known to teachers who did nothing. The armed guard at the school stood there with his thumb up his butt while the school was being shot up and did nothing. In other words, we have an avalanche of failures from the highest levels down to the lowest. Every rule, every procedure, every safeguard that was put in place to stop these shootings from happening failed to stop this one from happening because the adults who were entrusted with the responsibility to keep shootings from happening did not do their effing jobs. Everybody knew the kid had serious problems, but nobody wanted to step up and actually do anything about it. And now we're treated to the spectacle of these fake town hall meetings organized by left-wing agitators who teach the kids to recite the anti-gun talking points that they want them to say 
And we're supposed to just nod our heads and pretend that all we need to do is pass a few more laws and then everything will be just ducky. Sometimes I think we're all just cardboard cutouts living in a Potemkin village, unquote. The organ muse at the morning rant. It can't be said any better than that. That's exactly what it is and what it goes to is effeminacy, which is a which is either the antecedent to or a symptom of diabolical narcissism. That's not my job. It's not my job to do anything about this. I'm just going to sit by and watch. This is too difficult. This is too unpleasant. I, I, this isn't my job. I'm going to push this off on somebody else. It's also the notion of hating to help, hating to do anything that involves self-sacrifice from something as simple as helping to clean up all the way up to laying down your life and dying to protect the school children that in the school in which you work. Um, it's, it's the entire spectrum. It's a failure. Of, it's a feminacy. It's textbook of feminacy. It's a failure of, of virility or potency, which is a transcend, it transcends sex. It has nothing to do with male, female virtues are virtues. And women are called to be virile just as much as men are called to be virile. When something needs to be done, you do it when you have virility. If you have the ability to do something and it needs to be done, there's none of this standing around bullshit. That's not my job. Blah, 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 blah. I, I, I despise that. I absolutely despise that. If something needs to be done and you have the capacity to do it and you're in the position to do it, you do it and you quit your whining. But what is the whining about? It's about a lack of charity and a lack of fundamental respect for other human beings. Let me give you an example. I'll bet that there are people listening to this podcast right now. I'll bet there's women listening to this podcast right now who are like me in this respect. Ladies, do any of you, whenever you go into a public restroom, and you're there and you're kind of washing your hands and all that. And have you ever wiped down the um, the countertop in in the at the vanity in the public restroom? Have you ever picked up um, any paper towels that are laying on the floor or anything like that? Have you ever cleaned up a public bathroom? I do this fairly frequently. And it's there's no sense of. Well, this isn't my job. Um, this is what the this is what the janitors are being paid to do. No, if I'm standing there, and you know I can do something to kind of help tidy up a little bit and and wipe down a countertop and, and you know pick up a few paper towels. You know I grab a paper towel in my hand so that I'm not touching anyone else's foulness, and I wipe around and and do all that and throw it away. Why do I do that? And the, the, the thought, I'm, I promise you, the thought never crosses my mind. This isn't my job. I'm not being paid to do that. Why do I do that? So that maybe it's a little bit nicer and cleaner for the next people who come in. So that I leave it in better shape than I found it. Um, it's, just, it's just a simple question of fundamental respect. And what, what that actually is, is charity, caritas, the virtue of, of charity for other human beings. That's it. That's all. Let's just clean this up a little bit. I'm here. I'm here. I'm not pressed for time. I'll just wipe things down a bit. I'll bet there's other ladies listening to this podcast right now who do the same thing. That's what that is. 
and so and you can fair, take some. To be fair, I'm sure there are men who do it. I'm sure I'm not the only one who does that. I don't do it every single time, but I'm, I do it on occasion. Yeah, I think cleaning up public bathrooms is probably something that women do more. I don't know. But yeah, I'm sure there are men who do the same thing. And hey, if, if you are a man who does do things like that, if you pick up trash. Oh, you know what a great example of this is? Um, when they, years, a few years ago, within the last decade, when the Tea Party thing was rolling, they had a huge rally in Washington, D.C. on the mall. And I think it was one of the things that like Glenn Beck was involved in and all of these people turn out for this thing. And it's this huge, you know, mass of people on the National Mall. And they took pictures after all these people cleared out. There was no trash. Everyone had picked up after themselves. The mall was actually cleaner after this Tea Party group was there than before. It was spotless. And then like two days later, there was some damn thing, some leftist, uh, I don't know if it was, you know, Louis Farrakhan and the, and the blacks or, or if it was some feminist Probably deal. National I don't know organization what it was. Of women, I'm guessing. Say again? Probably the National Organization of Women. Probably something like that. Anyway, it was a bunch of leftists. And they show a picture of the National Mall after those people cleared out and left. And it was, I mean, it looked like, it looked like a dump. It looked like a garbage dump. They just... Everybody just dropped all of their crap right where they stood. Water bottles, you know, food wrappers, all of the signs, everything. It was it was an absolute disaster. That was so instructive because what's the difference? Those Tea Party people had fundamental more, obviously, fundamental respect for other human beings. And so that manifests as a as a virility in the sense of being willing to do things that are that are unpleasant. Cleaning is unpleasant. Sure, it's would would it be technically take the moral component out of it? Would it be technically easier to just drop all of your trash right where you stand and walk away from it? Take all moral considerations aside. Well, sure, it would be easier to do that. You, in order to pick up and clean up and to pick up and clean up after other people, that's even more unpleasant. But everybody did it. And so why? Because there was a fundamental respect for other people, which is at its heart, it's charity. So you love God. And then for the sake of loving God, you love other people, including perfect strangers, including people that you will never see. So, for example, the people who come after you in the public bathroom, you will never see these people. You will never see the benefit of you cleaning up the bathroom to the people who come after you. You'll never see it. There will be nobody saying thank you. There will be no sense of somebody walking into a bathroom and saying, wow, this is a really clean bathroom. There's none of that. The only thing that's motivating you is just this, this caring about other people just purely because they exist, because God created them and they exist. You know, th this, is, this is a really strong antidote also to the libertarians who say that whatever you do in private, behind closed doors, when nobody else can see or watch, doesn't matter, doesn't affect society at large. And this contradicts um, a, a point that um, um, Jordan Peterson was making in a podcast interview recently where he says that it, these things that you do, even in private, matter. And in the case of cleaning the bathroom, you, don't, you never see the consequences of what comes in afterwards, but it could just simply be the 
you know, when you walk into a pristine, absolutely perfectly clean, sparkling bathroom, there is a sense of, hey, this is cool. This is this is mm-hmm. orderly. You feel good. Maybe it's just because I have German blood. I don't know. But every, every, yeah. it, you, you feel positive as opposed to if, if you look, if you walk into something that just, you know, there's water spots everywhere, there's paper towels on the floor you immediately have a sense of this is, you know, if you feel superior, then you're going to say this is a, 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 per, a place below my dignity and I'm certainly not going to do anything to try and clean it up. But it's the whole idea that, you know, these are concrete opportunities to improve other people, both in, in, a, in a material sense and in a spiritual sense as well. And this gets into something else I heard in a podcast recently, which I think is Father Zulsdorf's podcast. He does the, the, the Lenten uh, podcast series. The, the quote that in moral theology, that which is difficult during your normal life is impossible at death. If you have difficulty doing little things like this during your normal everyday life, you're not going to be able to do it at all at the time of death. Exactly. And so you need to think about these things. And as weird as it seems, if you, if you start and you're able to focus and you're, you're able to develop these these virtues, specifically virility and charity, in something as completely, really trivial as the example of cleaning up a bathroom, let's now take that all the way to the other extreme. What are you going to do when you are put in a position where morally the expectation will be for you to lay down your life and die for somebody. What if you're in a situation where there is an active shooter? Um, if you can't engage in self-sacrifice, in, in the self-sacrifice of wiping down a countertop in a public bathroom or picking up paper towels off the floor, do we honestly believe that when the time comes for you to throw your body on top of or in front of a child or between between a perfect stranger and an active shooter. Which and happened are, in the shooting. Yes, absolutely. There were, were, were there two of the teachers. One of them was a was a coach, I believe, literally threw himself on top of and took bullets for um some of the students. I think the the assistant football coach took nine shots, if I remember correctly, from from yeah. what I've read. And and in terms of, I will lay down my life to protect these kids who are probably snot nosed little jerks to begin with. But that's not the point. What yep. is the manly, virtuous, virile thing to do here? Is it to be? And he wasn't armed either. So he no. gave his life, and he knew from the moment he was going to do something about this that this was going to be the last thing he did as opposed to the four sheriff's deputies outside the building who did nothing. And one of the one of the arguments in their defense that was put forward later is, well, the shooter had an AR-15 and they only had sidearms. And the, the difference in bullet... You know, <laughs> the city where I live, I think it's standard kit for every city police uh, cruiser to have an M4 rifle. Mm-hmm. Florida yep, is that- pretty dang affluent, especially that part right there. They don't have firepower, seriously. And these guys didn't do anything till the Coral, whatever, I kept saying Coral Gables, but it's not Coral Gables, Coral Coral something, Coral Springs, whatever. When the police department from the neighboring municipality showed up, that's when the, the Broward County Sheriff's deputies finally did something. Um, yes, you've got to be able to, you know, have the willingness, and if you don't have the, 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 the habit of virtue to do the right things when it's small, when nobody's looking, you're not going to have the the ability to do the big things when it really matters when you're when it's going to be the last thing you do and this also gets to the point too it's like okay I'm not 
I'm not suggesting this is why the, the Broward County Sheriff's didn't go in. But I made, we made the comment, or I made the comment on a previous episode, that this is a reason why you need to go to confession frequently um, and always mm-hmm. be in a state that you can see God right now if, 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 if necessary. Is Because if something like this, you know, let's say you go down to the mall to, I don't know, buy a T-shirt or whatever, and some knucklehead decides now's the time to sing Allah Akbar and break out his AK-47 and do something. Mm-hmm. If the first thought that comes to mind is I could charge the guy and probably stop loss of life, but I might lose my life in the process, but I need to go to confession. Yeah, that's a problem. It's a big problem. It's a big problem. And um, I'm with you. I doubt very seriously that that was um, <laughs> the primary consideration of the guys who were standing around outside of the school. But with, with regards to the argument that he, you know, the kid had an AR-15 and the, the cops outside only had their sidearms. I, I don't give a shit if all you have is a, is a damn rock. You, you run at him. You run at him. You charge him. You do anything you can to stop him. You die trying. You, if you have a sidearm, there's no excuse. You should be you should be shooting at him. You should be doing anything you can to distract him, to draw his fire. Oh no, that that's standing around outside. And that's what they did at Columbine. I mean, you you look at what happened at Columbine in 1999 there in, in um, what's that Littleton? I think it's Littleton, and the the SWAT team rolls in. The SWAT team rolls in and they stood around and outside and did nothing. Well, we have we have protocols for this. We can't we can't enter if there's a risk of anybody getting hurt. I mean, this th- that right there, that insanity, that insanity. We can't risk going in if there's a risk that anyone's going to get hurt. While while retard kid on psychotic meds is um is slaughtering heaven knows how many children inside of that school. Um, it's, it's all effeminacy and you, the, the firearm thing, it it just, it just doesn't even matter. It doesn't even matter. The only defense I would give in the, in the case of Columbine is if, if memory serves, I think that was the first major school shooting in the United States. So there were no, nobody had ever thought to concretely put into their procedures in standard responses, what to do in the case of a school shooting. So for the SWAT team to say that I kind of get it. I still think it's stupid, but I kind of get it. But, it's, you know, it, but I mean, what does SWAT stand for? It stands special for special weapon, weapons and tactics. tactics. Yes. I mean, they, don't, I mean, don't you think that the, I think the thing that was unexpected about Columbine is that it was students. Um, they had already had the um, well, maybe not. We'd have to look this up. Had they already had the thing in the school in Chechnya where the ter- where the Muslim terrorists went in and killed all the children? I can't was, remember what the timeline on that is. I remember his best line. I remember that um, Spetsnaz replied to it, and I remember a whole bunch of tactical details about it, but I don't remember the date. <laughs> well, <laughs> I'm laughing here. because I, I, I have a, a massive interest in, in military special forces, so this is something I've read about several times, and... and um, I oh, don't remember 2004, the 2004. Okay. Okay. Well, and I was going to say that, you know, I wasn't really in the military. I was in the Navy and I was in a, uh, for a while I was in, I was in a group. <laughs> yeah. You almost caught that one past me. Oh goodness. Go ahead. All go my ahead. fellow squids, you know what I'm talking about. Um, <laughs> but I was in a group for a while that were uh, camouflage and did things on shore. And, um, one of the things they, that they taught us was even if you are in an unarmed group, if you come across a situation where you're ambushed, the proper response is to charge the ambush even if you don't have weapons, because that's first off, that's not what they're expecting. Secondly, 
even though the first person in line for charging may get mowed down, you're going to advance the possibility to overrun the lines for everyone behind you. The, 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 that's one of the things, I mean, like I make the joke about myself, I wasn't really military, but for crying out loud, the, the Broward County um, deputies who, who just sat around doing nothing, what is your training? Yeah, that's another. You ought to be expecting, if necessary, if called upon. I mean, it's one of the things we do in, in Navy boot camp, for crying out loud, is that we, we have this, um, I forget the name of the day. There are so many different days in, in boot camp. They have a specific meaning to it. But I seem to recall that we, we, we stood around and listened to uh, Lee Greenwood's God Bless the USA as part of this day. But it was the, <laughs> it was the solemn acknowledgement that if called upon, we are signing a blank check up, uh, up to and including our life if mm-hmm. called upon to defend this country. We will voluntarily lay down our life if that's what it requires to serve the country. What did these jabronis do down here in, in, in um, Broward County? Well, this is a rabbit hole that could get very deep very quickly, and that is the state of um, you know the police force, all of the different police forces in the United States, it, and it's not good. It's not good. Um, you know, I'm my default position is, of course respect law enforcement, respect the police, but I'm also a realist. And I know that there's a lot of people who are on police forces who have absolutely no business being there, who are unfit in myriad, myriad ways. Um, Where I'm, you know, my previous stomping grounds in the central and mountain west of the country, there's a considerable problem with steroid use among cops. Um, And so, That's an interesting point to bring up. The steroid use amongst the cops, it turns them into rage monsters who are looking for target practice. I mean, that would have been good in this case, to be honest. Say again? That would have been good in this case. It would have been good in this case, but, um, you know, you can't have that. You, what, Speaking of something that we were talking that we've been talking about on the blog recently is is meekness and talking about what meekness is. It's power under control. The steroided up roid rage monster is not meek. He is not power under under control. And in fact, all of that business of of these, uh, you know, guys who become cops who are on steroids. What what is that about? Okay, that's that is just textbook somatic narcissism. If you've watched my diabolical narcissism video, you remember one of the first concepts we cover are the two types of narcissists. There are somatic narcissists and somatic means things pertaining to the body, the physical body. So the somatic narcissist is the guy who's taking steroids because he's looking in the mirror and he wants to be, um, he wants to be muscular and so forth, even though you can tell them a mile away, they're just puffy. They're not, they're not ever cut or anything thing. You can tell a steroid guy immediately. Um, So he's a somatic narcissist. And then the other species is the cerebral narcissist who's, you know, in love with his own intellectual brilliance. And those are the two types. Um, But it okay, let's look at this, the roided up cops. Those guys are somatic narcissists. And they um, what does that mean? What does it mean to be a narcissist? It means you have made the free choice to purge yourself of what? Love, charity, the virtue of charity. And look, we're right back. We're right back standing around outside of that school. Why don't, why wouldn't a roided up cop charge into a school like that? Potentially. Well, if he's a somatic narcissist, he doesn't do it because the entire notion of self-sacrifice is predicated upon the ability to love. 
It's predicated on the ability to be willing to lay down your life for other human beings. And that is a species of love. And if you are a person who has purged yourself of love, you're not going to do that. So despite we could the say, fact that you might have the physical physique that would be somewhat immune or, or able you or enable you to recover quickly from gunfire wounds. Indeed. And even um, aggression, which that word was specifically used in the um, movie clip that I posted, which actually came from you, Super Nerd. So thanks for that. That got that was syndicated in, in multiple different places around the Internet, people that really struck a chord with people. And what the father, the word the father used, the phrase that he used, in fact, was the gift of aggression. Well, the steroid guys, for example, um, they would have aggression, but it's not aggression coming from charity. It's aggression coming from the fact that they're completely steroided up. Um, and so it's a, it's, it's, it's false in that sense. Furthermore, if the, if the charity isn't there, if the virtue of charity isn't there in, even in this, this incredibly masculine context, and that's, again, I mean, it's, it's so sad that, the infiltration of our culture has been made to to paint charity as if it is an intrinsically feminine thing and nothing could be further from the truth it i mean talk about something that is utterly transcendent it's it's love it's the ability to love that transcends male and female um, and so it's it's just a lie that has been told that you know only women really have this 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 ability this true ability to love this is this is just a satanic lie from the infiltrators don't buy it for a second well, and this flies in the face of the whole idea that, you know, for how many years now we've heard that uh, men and women are, are equal, they can do anything. So if we buy into this line of equality, then why should it be an insult to be telling somebody that, you know, you, that it's a feminine virtue? Well, shouldn't we all be doing this if we're all the same anyway? Now, uh. that just underlies <laughs> an, an inherent insanity in all this, but yeah. It also gets, you know, kind of gets toward a point where, you know, we, we, we put together the outline for what we wanted to talk about in this podcast. And I, I texted you this morning and said, we've got enough here for two, if not three podcasts, getting into the whole topic of masculinity as, as a topic by itself. Oh, yeah. Uh, masculinity versus uh, femininity. Something that's been coming up. There have been a lot of news stories coming out. Um you know, that are, are boys okay, or 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 all these different things talking about boys and and, and real and, and highlighting the point that you know, for a couple of decades at least, we've had the whole notion of what is feminism. Now, granted, there's been first wave, second wave, third wave feminism, which all contradict each other. But without a doubt, there's this whole idea of feminism, be strong, go girl, and all this other stuff. So that depending upon which flavor of feminism you want to listen to, there's a solid idea for how to become a woman as a feminist. And if you issue all of that and decide to go with the traditional idea of femininity, that's actually still, you can find plenty of that as well. But there is somewhat of a deficit of, of what does it mean to be a man? How do, how do you raise a man? How mm -hmm. do you raise a boy to be a man? And that's definitely a problem here. And there are people who assert that, um, that society is saying your choices are to become metrosexual or gay or, mm -hmm. and if you reject that, your, your choices are complete withdrawal or to become violent. And yeah. I think there's some truth to the fact that, that, uh, that society is beating things into people like this and, and, and basically saying it's not good to be masculine. In fact, they, they, they have the phrase toxic masculinity. Of toxic course, masculinity, of properly understood, is saintly masculinity. 
Oh, of course it is. Masculinity is being painted as a vice. It's one of the only vices that exists right now. The other one, I suppose, being what? Intolerance? Would that be the other one? That's um, always the first um, the first vice of those who, or projected vice of, of those who, who uh, are deviant and, and want ascendancy. Of course, of course. So, you know, masculinity as a vice, toxic masculinity, and you're exactly right. There is almost nothing out there today that shows a, a boy or a young man how to be a man, a, a true man, a, a man of virtue. It's just almost completely gone. There's all this stuff for women, and most of the stuff for women is completely wrong. And it just it drives me absolutely batty. Um, there are so many women out there that you see talking about girl power this and discrimination against women that and glass ceilings this. And there are so many of them. And there's some of them that I've, you know, come in, come in contact with over the years, just glancingly, because I obviously I would never have anything to do with any sort of a feminist at all. I would not want to be friends with any such, such person, but you come in, come in glancing contact with these people in the corporate world, in, in the church, so on and so forth. And you know what the common thread with most of these women is who are, who are, who are talking about girl power, this and um, breaking barriers and all that. Most of these women have slept their way into almost everything that they have and are just incredibly resentful of women who haven't violated the sixth commandment and don't violate the sixth commandment. I, n- I never had any problems that people always ask me, Oh wow, you know, you were you were in the cattle industry with all those all those quote unquote rednecks and all this. Um, and <laughs> by rednecks, I mean you know hard hardworking men who go outside and and work for a living. Well, if you think that's an insult, whatever. I don't think it's an insult. They say, oh, you're you know, it must have been so hard for you, Anne, all those years, you know, being in the cattle business. And you know, it it never was, it never was. And the lesson that I learned, and I learned it quick, is that. If you were genuinely competent and you just basically gave no one any choice but to listen to you, um, there was no there was no problem with my being a female. And remember, I was not only female during all of my career, <laughs> obviously. <laughs> what else would I have been? I was young and I looked young. And I would stand up in front of a room full of men who had paid $500 a head and I would start talking and within a matter of 10 seconds, every man in the room knew that I was competent. You have horse sense, even if you're talking about cows. Yeah, exactly, exactly. I had horse sense. I knew what I was talking about. I had bearing. There was no problem ever. And, you know, I hear all these women whining about this, that, and the other, then you, you learn about them. And a lot of these women are in fact using, using sex as a tool to climb the corporate ladder X, Y, and Z. And then having the unmitigated nerve, having the unmitigated nerve to appeal to feminacy and girl power. We're seeing this right now in Hollywood. I've had, um, several conversations, a couple with priests, several with other people, and they all said the same thing. They say, I have no sympathy whatsoever for all of these women in Hollywood who are complaining about, you know, being raped by Harvey Weinstein or whatever. And they, they're absolutely true. These women 
are prostitutes. They made the conscious decision to prostitute themselves, to allow themselves to be sexually violated or whatever. They made the conscious decision to allow that to happen. And most of them, if you read about any of this Hollywood garbage, they went back for more. They went back for more of their own free will. There was nothing I could do. It was the only way I could maintain my career. Uh, That's called prostitution. No sympathy. No sympathy. Um, And so it's, you know, it's the classic thing with, you know, there's racism this, there's racism that. Well, actually, no. I think the modern American culture is the least racist culture in probably all of human history. People, black people, Mexican people who are genuinely talented, who are genuinely intelligent, who are genuinely competent, not only don't have any problem, but you know, in order to appease and satisfy the politically correct wing of the culture, when a hyper competent black person emerges in an industry, man, they're going to go, they're going to go right up the ladder immediately because everybody wants to have that. Everybody wants to demonstrate that they have quote unquote diversity in that stuff. So if, but this is the catch. If you're genuinely competent and you're genuinely talented and you're genuinely above average, I think the complaint coming from all of these quarters is from people who are who are just mediocrities, who can't cut it. And so they appeal to racism, feminism, all this garbage. And that's where all this has come from. Uh, If you're a genuinely uh, competent woman in the business world, even and especially in agribusiness, it seems to me that there's absolutely no problem, none at all. And I would, uh, I'd be interested to hear any arguments to the contrary. The only, the only time I was ever treated in a bad way within the context of my career was from the the corporate higher ups in Chicago. And I'll never forget one of the, uh, one of the corporate higher ups in Chicago back when I was working for, um, when I was working in a branch office of a big firm, um, before I started my own firm, they had this woman and it was clear. It was obvious. She had no competence. Her degree had nothing to do with finance. She was in the position that she was in and she was put up the corporate ladder for one reason and one reason only. She was female. She was, she just, that's it. That's it. And sure, I guess that's why they are insecure. And I guess that's why they are constantly whining and so on and so forth. It's the same thing with blacks. Look at Michelle Obama constantly whining and whining and whining about not enough uh diversity this discrimination against blacks that what that all is is michelle obama has knew knows and always knew the whole time that she was an affirmative action that she was a product of affirmative action that she didn't deserve anything that she was getting she had absolutely no business getting anywhere near princeton um truth be told she probably had no business getting anywhere near even the simplest undergraduate program. She's the kind of person who is of sufficiently low intelligence that she should have been in some sort of a, a, a trade or something like that. She you probably know? wasn't sufficiently smart to be with Barack Obama. Indeed. Indeed. Read her Princeton thesis and it's, it, you will see her Princeton thesis is written at charitably a seventh grade level. 
deep down she knew and knows that she didn't have the talent for any of this. She knew she knew that she was a mediocrity at best and was significantly below average in truth. That's the insecurity. That's the anger. That's why all the bitterness and resentment. I'm a victim, blah, blah, blah. Um, yeah. Which there's... kind of gets into a, a topic of equality of outcome as opposed to equality of opportunity. You know, the, the, there's, there's this notion that we all ha have to have, you know, equal outcomes in everything we do. We need to be equally successful, equally happy. Um, it's, it's one thing, um, I meant, I mentioned uh, the Navy earlier. There, there are certain fields in the Navy where if you are a, not a white man uh, and you meet the minimum qualifications to get into a program, for example, becoming a pilot or getting into special forces or any number of, there, there are several fields where to get into it, if you aren't in the dominant um, uh, demographic group, you can get in easily. But thankfully for a long time, you then were held to the same standards as everybody else. Mm -hmm. For example, SEALs uh, in, in the Navy, just because you can meet the minimum physical requirements to get into SEAL training, that's not good enough to actually get into SEAL training. You've got to blow it away by a significant margin. Yeah. And, and unless you are in a, you know, a, a different group that they want to be able to get more people in. I mean, it's, it's kind of weird. I mean, I, I got a chance to actually see and hang out with some of the SEALs when I was in, when I was in the Navy and they, they are, in addition to being nondescript people, you wouldn't pick them out of a lineup for the most part. They, they don't look like. Uh, ultimate warriors. They look like people who just blend into society for the most part. They're, they're white, Asian, and not that tall. That's honestly mm -hmm. the, the, uh, the stereotype. Um, there are obviously going to be outliers from, from all the rest. But for example, if you're black and you can meet the minimum requirements to get into buds, you're getting in, but you're equal yeah. from that point on. And, and in, in the cases where the Naval flight program is another one of those. And unfortunately, in some cases, um, accommodations were made for people. Um, I'll just call it straight. It was a woman named Kara, Kara Holtgreen. Go ahead and Google that one and see how that turned out. She was passed when she should have been uh, in, in a male at three or four or five different times during training would have been dropped from the flight program. Mm -hmm. But it was important to the Navy to get a woman through the, through the pipeline. She was uh, eventually passed through to the fleet and um, just a routine training uh, flight off the coast of California. She crashed her F-14. And that's on the bottom of the ocean now. I don't know if they ever recovered her body or not. Uh, she died, huh? Oh, yes, yes. Yeah. Um, yeah. And, and it was, and I'm not saying that that particular scenario would have been, it would have been challenging for any aviator, but the point being that she should have been dropped anyway. And when you strive for equality of outcome, that's like saying, hey, I want to join the NBA. Yeah, I'm, I'm short. Right. I'm short to be a point guard in the NBA. I'm tall mm -hmm. among the regular, a regular population, but I'm short among point guards in the NBA. Just because I want it doesn't mean I should have it. And so when you get to this idea of equality of outcome and equality, how do you measure this? Well, so. and now, you know, you've got, you're teaching this, this generation coming up to literally, literally det detach themselves from reality. So it doesn't matter what reality is. A boy can be a girl. A girl can be a boy. Someone who is five, eight and, and pudgy can be a superstar in the NBA. That's the level of detachment from reality that you're seeing amongst these kids and it's, it's just going to get worse from here. The other point I want to make is, that, you know, there's a reason, there's a reason why there are so few successful women in certain fields. And there's a reason why there are so few um, successful men in certain fields, which are female dominated. If you're going to be someone who crosses a, a, 
a conventional threshold like that. These cross talent, these um, talents that that are not transcendent of sex. So there are certain things that men are just intrinsically better that better at. There are things that women are just intrinsically better at. But you know, things like uh, business, mathematics, economics, things like this wildly, wildly um, more men are successful at these because the male psyche is just intrinsically better. Now, that's not to say that there aren't a very few outliers of the opposite sex in whatever field that can transcend, but it's extremely rare. So the people who have the genuine talent, um, in my experience in this day and age, people who are genuinely talented especially in something that involves making money and, and that can generate value for someone else, they're not going to have much trouble at all. But it's exactly back to the point that you're saying. What this society is trying to say is that there is absolutely no difference in these, in these talent sets between the sexes. And so, you know, some completely squishy woman who can't think in a in a very regimented, logical, um, mathematical type of a way should be wildly successful in something like the financial industry. Well, no, that's that's not true because it is an intrinsically masculine sort of a, a psychology and comportment and mindset that is required for that. Not to say there can't be outliers, but and what would be an example going the other way of something that's an intrinsically feminine thing that may, that men can be good can be good at um, Not- nurses with awesome bedside banner yes there you go there you go very very good so that's why there's only a handful of male nurses and why there's only a handful of male nurses that are absolutely spectacular at what they do and why it's so much more populated by women. That's great. Um, this whole notion of, of inequality, I don't, I don't want to live in a culture and a society that is in which there is enforced equality because that's not reality. I want to live in a, in a culture in which reality trumps everything. It trumps absolutely everything. And we acknowledge reality and we deal with reality. And I also want to live in a meritocracy. I have no interest in living in a culture in which people are given things which they do not have the talent, the proclivity for, which they do not deserve. And uh, boy, talk about the understatement of the day. There it is right there. There it is right there. That's so much of what's wrong with, with our culture. For those of you who like tangent tangents to the conversation, yeah. <laughs> that was a good one. I forgot what we tangented from. <laughs> we started off talking about cops standing around outside schools while kids right. are getting shot up, but you know, yeah, well, we could we could probably do a whole another ninety minutes. Yeah, on. well, let me let me just jump back to something semi-random in the outline here. We 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 had uh, had in the notes here the FBI failure, and you've talked about this before that uh, the FBI as as a serious law enforcement agency is is sort of done. I mean, I saw yeah. a meme on Facebook saying, "I wish the FBI were half as good at protecting children at schools from shooters as they are at protecting the Clintons and the Obamas." Yep, it's 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 a complete joke now. It is a complete and total joke, um, and. I've been screeching and yelling on the internet about this for a decade now, trying, jumping up and down, trying to get people to understand that you have to get this notion of this 
um, hyper-competent government out of your mind. Um, the Americans still have this have this delusion in their minds. Some Americans. The, some Americans have this delusion in their minds that there's just these hyper-competent people who are keeping an eye on everything and controlling everything and boy, they're not, they're not going to let anything bad happen. I mean, the FBI is just, it's operating as a, as a political dirty tricks arm. If, if that isn't obvious to everyone by now, I, I just don't know what else you could possibly do. They're not doing any sort of significant law enforcement. Any law enforcement they're doing is completely selective based on political cronyism. The whole thing needs to be absolutely disbanded. I mean, I've been an advocate of, of just tearing the entirety of the Washington, D.C. infrastructure down to the ground. And some sort of a hard reset is going to have to be done. Now, you know, as more and more time passes, you realize that what that hard reset, what I mean by that is the triumph of the Immaculate Heart. And I'm not being facetious. Well, it's going to be there some sort of supernatural something there is a middle road and this is something where again you people who hate jews are going to hate this but okay it was it was on uh, the ben shapiro podcast talking about how the people who who were so pro obama versus anti-obama versus now pro-trump anti-trump this is Im- immense polarization about uh, who ha- who the president happens to be and the problem with this really isn't who the president is is the fact of how much power is concentrated in washington dc if we would really re-emphasize the the tenth amendment and the principles of subsidiary and let the states govern themselves for the most part. Yeah. And just de-emphasize the importance of the federal government. We could get back to a point where we really don't care who the president is. There are 22 items in the enumerated clause of what the government should care about and what they should do. Let them stick to those 22 and let the states manage themselves. That actually would fix a ton of things. Oh yeah. No doubt. No doubt at all. And you know, going back to law enforcement, um, it seems to me that every uh, every state has a Bureau of Investigation. So at that point, we see how corrupt the FBI is. Not just corrupt, but utterly, completely incompetent. Um, it is a dangerous thing that people assume, Americans assume that the FBI is competent. And the FBI, if you call an FBI tip line, that something is actually going to come of that when in fact it isn't because all they are is a political and dirty tricks enforcement arm. They don't give a crap. They don't give a crap about some crazy nut kid, psychotic fetal alcohol, whatever the hell he is. They don't give a crap about that. If the person calling in the tip would have told the FBI that this kid had the absolute, you know, you know, absolute nuts, um, uh, proof to put, uh, Trump in jail of collusion of Russia, they would have been there. Yep. T- tell them that the kid was a hacker and that he had information about um, about Trump and Russia. Make something up like that. You betcha. Or call and tell them that the kid made a threat against um, the Clintons or the Obamas or or you know, somebody who's somebody, Nancy Pelosi, who's still in office and all of that, Do, you know, say something like that. They might have paid attention. But just t- talking about a kid who's threatening to shoot up a school, yeah, they, they absolutely they do not care. They do yeah. not care. They're incompetent. These um, the, the FBI does not communicate with, you know, the um, what's it called? ICE or the the immigration people. 
they've been talking about this now for years. There's no cross communication. They're not sharing information with each other. Um, in fact, you know, there's a history of animosity between the FBI and the CIA and this tribalism and this clanism. And it's just, it's just pathetic. It's, it's so pathetic disband the whole damn thing. But of course, you probably, they're not going to do that because these people being in the dirty tricks business, um, and it's called something else in A Few Good Men, or um, yeah, in, or, or in All the President's Men, excuse me. It's called something else, but we won't, we won't use that term. All of this dirty tricks business strongly, strongly, strongly implies that what the FBI and the CIA and these other national level, quote unquote, law enforcement and intelligence groups and the NSA is that they have all the goods to blackmail all of these people in the government. So all of the people. And again, this is exactly like the situation in the church. It's exactly the same thing. They're all blackmailable, all of them. And they have there's people that have information. Everybody has information on everyone else. But I think at this point, in terms of this black blackmailing culture and this blackmailing dynamic, particularly when you're talking about the Washington, D.C. mess, who's who's got the real goods on people who could really, really, really play some very serious cards? The NSA. Well, I, yeah, the NSA, the FBI, the CIA. Well, no, um, the, the it NSA. probably isn't Nancy Pelosi's... Um, you know, secretary. Well, does does Nancy Pelosi even know she's still in the Congress? No, the, the <laughs> yeah, um, that Alzheimer's is, is no, catching the, up the, with her quick. The NSA, thankfully there are some good patriots in there, but uh, I've seen the joke made that the NSA is the only branch of the government that actually listens. But, um, <laughs> they, if you want to go to one place, uh, that to, to know what everything is going on. Yeah. But they're, they also have enough, Fortunately, there's enough, there are enough patriots at that organization to realize that uh, they cannot divulge how they know what they know because otherwise it would be serious, you know, you know there would be ramifications to national security at that point. So mm-hmm. in terms oh, of what the FBI mess. knows, probably not a lot. Um, the NSA is where, you, where all the answers are, you know, but yep. they, they don't answer questions very often. Indeed, indeed. And who who's watching the watchers? Who's going to hold these people to account? Oh, good grief, man! Well, if you, if you know your your um, Napoleonic history, there there were a couple of generals who had performed poorly in previous battles, and Napoleon, as a warning, um, sent them into the next battle with nooses around their neck, and they performed heroically. And uh, at that's how the the military decoration of the I think it's called the epaulet. It looks like a hangman's noose. It's a it's a series of circular knots around a cord. Ah, yes, yes. I have suggested for a long time, not that anybody asks me, but if I was emperor of the North America. There would be certain governmental positions of, of public service that I would call noose positions that based on what you are doing and your ability to affect things for good and ill, that if it was demonstrated that you were not um, up, to, up to snuff, so to speak, I mean, it, you'd have to de- demonstrate negligence, but it's, it's just automatic capital punishment, you know, because, yeah, absolutely. You, for example, yeah. if, you, if you're the secretary of health and human services and you defraud the system, death penalty mm-hmm. publicly, you've defrauded everybody in the system. If you are the head of law enforcement for the country and you are engaged in uh, corruption and cover-ups, death penalty, yep. you have betrayed every single person in the body politic. Absolutely. That is a, that's a crime against humanity and it's a crime against peace. No question that there has to be, we have to reinstate some sort of paradigm of capital punishment for governmental corruption. It's not, nothing is going to be fixed until 
you start, you know, putting putting these people against walls, firing squad, and then publicly displaying the and hang the bodies from the light posts. Um, I've said this many times, and you know, it's the same thing with these elected politicians as well. Um, make corruption a a capital offense, and watch the caliber of the people who get involved in national level politics change and change almost overnight. And there's no hope until that happens. If it becomes obvious that somebody is holding everybody to account and that only honorable people are in government or will be tolerated in government, you will have an influx of honorable people to fill those positions. But as it is now, it goes to the highest bidder. What else goes to the highest bidder? You know, there's there's the joke that uh, prostitution is the oldest uh, profession in the world and and politicians are the second and that the second bears a strong resemblance to the first. It's the mm-hmm. same darn reason why. Absolutely. They're, they are whores. They're in it for the money. The And most of them, again, going back to the same old thing, um, Barnhart Axiom, you know, because people in this day and age are seeking to hold especially high level national level public office that in and of itself is indicative of the fact that they are psychologically and morally incapable of holding high public office in a in a moral society and so what you get back to is the whole notion of the national level politicians almost to a man being diabolical narcissists, the bureaucracy who's, who's supporting them. And this includes things like the FBI. Um, that, that is also a bureaucracy. Um, who's populating that beta diabolical narcissists, the people who are very content to go through life, having attached themselves to someone who is more powerful, um, than they are, but will provide them with all of the largesse and benefits will provide them with these, these massively overpaid positions such that now the, um, suburbs outside of Washington, DC are it's, it's the suburbs outside of Washington, DC and it's Palo Alto, California. I mean, those are the two huge, huge real estate bubbles. Everybody, you know, medium income is just crazy. Um, all these people getting all this money and they're completely content with that. They're completely content to attach themselves to some psychopath that they know is a psychopath above them. Um, whether that be the head of the FBI or whether that be a congressman or a senator or someone in the executive branch, it, it just doesn't matter. It's just all across the board. So you've got this, this, notion of these people who are completely in it for themselves, completely corruptible. Um, many of them have self purged any notion of charity. Other human beings are merely objects, pawns to be used to advance their own agenda. And it goes for the alphas just as much as it goes for the betas, or I should say it goes for the betas just as much as the alphas. Those, these bureaucrats will be absolutely ruthless. And as we started the podcast with, I'm quite sure that I probably visited with, with one of them yesterday when I called Cardinal to- Tobin's office and talked to that very, very nasty, unpleasant man who almost certainly was lying through his teeth to me about Cardinal Tobin um, lo- uh, tweeting tweeting something that sounded incredibly erotic and very, very um, inappropriate to his quote unquote sister. Why would a man do that? Why would a man take a job where it was his job to lie and cover for some some heretic at best and probably a sodomite? 
masquerading as a cardinal of the Catholic Church. Why would any self-respecting man take a, a position like that and do and do that, you know, answer those phones and and just lie for these these deplorable men? Because that's what they are. They are beta, beta diabolical narcissists. They want that paycheck. They want the security. They want the prestige, the sense of being elite, whatever it is, the connection to power, um, and then any benefit that they get off of it as well. Um, some of them have aspirations to increasing their own power, but a lot of them don't. A lot of them are completely content to maintain their own little fiefdom, you know, in, in a local chancery or in a local uh, political office or, or in a local, in a smaller corporate environment. If you can, if they can just be the king of their little hill, that's, that's good enough for them. But the problem is that they just they run roughshod over other human beings and scandalize other human beings and cause other human beings sometimes to be so scandalized that other people start to self purge themselves of love as what as a misguided defense mechanism. And then the cycle continues and continues and continues. Well, and, and for the for the population of people supporting that apparatus who aren't alpha or betas, there are those who have crushing student loans and other debts they have to pay, which gets into the perfect storm of you know, the, the other major vice of the United States, the, the greed and, and um, the excessive um, lust for money, basically. That the, avarice. You know, I've heard by, it. I've heard. By the time. Like, who somebody, was it? Was it Father Ripperger maybe said it was avarice? I'm sure he did. He's, and he's one of the best to explain this if you can follow everything he says. I mean, that that's the great mm -hmm. thing about the audio resources from him. You could at least listen to it six, seven times and then look everything up and then listen to it again now that you understand all the words he used. <laughs> Indeed. But, and, and, and that's that's not a bad thing to say. I mean, that's a, it's an indictment of America as it exists right now is that we don't understand the, the basic vocabulary to understand all this. But uh, they're, I, would, I, I wouldn't call them gamma level um, because they're, they're not really involved in the in the narcissism per se. But the people who just need a job, darn it, they got, they got a yep. mortgage, they got bills. You know, they they don't they don't like where they're at. But and I don't know where that guy fits into the. He sounds more like a beta, but you know there there is that other tertiary level there that they prefer things are different. And so it's it's not that everybody in the world right now that are involved in something that's less than less than awesome uh, are going to be necessarily an ars, uh, arsonist. <laughs> <laughs> cultural arsonist yes um a, a narcissist but uh no the, the the point that is that you know that there is yet another one in in uh, classification but probably in this case there there it's a beta there's something i wanted to get back to before we wrap up the podcast though mm -hmm. with regard to you know the shooting and, and everything mm -hmm. um the whole natural law of self-defense and the arguments that are being raised now you know the, the, the manipulation of the, of the children who were who survived the school shooting at this fake CNN town hall thing, where where the one kid was fed the line, where he looked at Marco Rubio and said, "When I look at you, I look, I feel like I'm looking down the barrel of an AR-15." The whole point here is that they're trying to set the stage to justify some sort of seizure of firearms, essentially, to take to to set up the 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 situation where the American government can be authorized to either restrict or take away the rights enshrined in the, sec in the Second Amendment. And by the way, a great point of precision that I heard in one podcast is the Second Amendment does not give you the right to bear arm, own and bear arms. It reaffirms that that right preexisted the Constitution and restricts the Congress from in infringing upon that right, which is something very important. And unfortunately, a lot of even the most conservative voices 
talk about the Second Amendment as giving us the right to bear arms. No, it protects us from having an infringement of that right that pre-exists. And this comes from the natural law. Right, of course, it's a natural law. The right to defend yourself and your own life, your own, and even your own property, is a function of the natural law, which comes from God. So there's there's absolutely no question about that. That, yeah, the Second Amendment doesn't give anything. Um, so, but it's I think it's a negative that what, protection. Exactly, exactly. And so I think what a lot of this dynamic is, is what they're trying to inculcate into these children is this whole notion of making suicide, even passive suicide, out to be one of the most supremely virtuous acts that you can, that a person can engage in. And so now they're teaching the kids, um, you know, because it's not good enough that we're contracepting ourselves, we're auto-genociding ourselves with contraception. It's not good enough that we're auto-genociding ourselves with abortion. Um, now, th- and now the the euthanasia paradigm is coming up. So th- all of these kids in this generation that are in high school right now, in fact, I think probably in super nerd, in yours and my generation, we're both born in the 70s, um, that as we age now and more and more of us get diagnosed with cancer, Parkinson's, whatever it is, you know, terminal, terminal illnesses and illnesses that imply either great suffering or expense, you know, um, or a lack of even just a lack of productivity. We're going to be pushed into active suicide by euthanasia. Prove how good of Prove how good of a person you are. Prove how good of a person you are by not having any children. Prove how good of a person you are by, you know, aborting this child who isn't going to be able to be raised in the home of a millionaire. Prove how good of a person you are. Prove how good of a person you are by killing yourself with euthanasia as soon as you become either non-productive or terminally ill. And now they're teaching these kids Prove how virtuous you are by going out, you children, and publicly declaring that you don't want anyone to def- to be able to defend you. You want to be a sitting duck. This is look how virtuous you are. I mean, it's it's it actually, if you think about it, we started off the podcast earlier talking about the notion of being willing to lay down your life. And that is a a manifestation of virility and charity. Look what Satan is now doing, completely inverting it, totally inverting it and saying, you children to prove that you are virtuous people. Prove how unselfish you are. Prove how much love, love in in quotes, you have for other people by being willing to be slaughtered and have no one be able to defend you. You can't defend yourselves and no one else can defend you either. Look at this satanic, complete and total twisting of this so that the kids are not they're not willing to lay down their life because it's the right thing to do. They're not willing to lay down their life for anyone else. What they are being incited into is suicide, 
suicide and a suicidal mindset in order to prove how they um, adhere to what are really these satanic counter virtues that are being pushed on on the society. It's just a 48th trimester abortion. Yep. Well said. It's, it's not a crime. In fact, they're, they're probably better off. You know, they're, they're probably just doomed to a life of, of student loan debts and so on and so forth and just a life of drudgery and toil, working, having to work. I mean, gosh, who, who could ever possibly, possibly desire that? Uh, boy, until we have a, a communist utopia in which there's a, you know, universal guaranteed income or something like that, what human being would want to live? Getting back to different uh, invocations or titles of Our Lady, I almost want to pray to Our Lady of Akita. It's like, you know, okay, so you're holding back God's wrath and, and uh, your, your, your vision is fire falling from the heavens. At this point, I'm kind of scratching my head saying, if it'll fix everything, bring it on. Yeah, bring it on. Absolutely. And that's, again, that isn't suicidal. That's, please, God, it, fix this. Fix I'm willing this, to lay down my life, you know, in the same sense that the Carmelites who ended the, by, by, by sacrificing themselves, ended the, the terror in, in, in the, of the French Revolution. Mm-hmm. You know, if, if I have to voluntarily lay down my life uh, to end the, the insanity of what's going on right now, <laughs> no, oh, no problem. This isn't a second no problem. I'll do it. Yep. Yep, absolutely. We and we think about it and we just I'm like you. I'm just wondering I, I'm wondering in the sense of wondering in amazement how long it is that this is going to be able to continue to drag out. And we you know, you open you open the news every day, whether it's Canon two twelve for the news of the church or opening Drudge to look at the secular news. And it's just what fresh hell is there going to be today? And every day Every day, it's something new that, you know, a year ago, probably, was just completely unthinkable. And every day, they're throwing stuff at you, and we can't keep up. And I feel bad that I'm not, you know, people send me send me emails saying, why don't you comment on this and such thing happened, that and such thing happened. And, you know, you... You sit down and you're thinking, okay, today I'm going to write about this and such thing that happened 48 hours ago. And then you open either your email or Canon 212 and you look and there's something new and and worse. You know, if, if it's not, you know, sodomy, it's money laundering and on and, you know, germ, the German church telling everybody that they can come to Holy Communion or just every day it's something new. And you just you can't keep up with it and you almost just don't even know what to say. I think I said this before on a previous, on a previous episode, it's not a matter of having writer's block. It's a matter of that. There's so much, there's so much to write about and there's so much to say that it almost just, you just sit in front of your, uh, in front of your screen and just look at it and say, well, do, do I even bother with this now or do I move on to this next thing? What do I even do? And then you decide to just, you know, go make some soup or something. So that's kind of what we're, what we're all fighting. Well, given, given the discussion we've had about um, epistemology and, and words and what they mean, you're just, the, just the phrase Jesus meek and humble of heart. And of course the words meek and humble don't mean the same thing. Make our hearts like unto thine. And we, we make the, we made, you made the comment earlier about tracing the insanity of the Victorian age back to the French Revolution. And, and a lot of people will, you know, the traditional circles will say, if, if only we could have stopped Vatican II. But 
anybody with longer term memory would have said, well, actually it started back in, you know, the French revolution and other people will say, no, it started back in the Protestant revolution. And it mm. goes back before that to the, to the, uh, the area of Jan Hus and the, the Hussites and, and central Europe. And it, it, there were, the revolution has been going on ever since the garden of Eden. Yep. And St. Augustine points this out in, you know, the, the, the eternal quest is city of God or city of man. Which one are we going to be in? And we have yep. the free will choice, and that and that's the that's the great opportunity. It's the great um, it's the great challenge for all of us it, it, to to decide to 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 decide: Are we going to be spiritually manful and 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 choose to side with God and deny ourselves, or to indulge ourselves and turn our backs on God? Which one are we going to yep. choose? That's really what it all comes back to. I mean, all the rest of this is just flowing out. Consequentially, I mean, if, if everybody in the world today decided I'm going to turn my back on the city of man and focus on the city of God, I'm going to be holier, I'm going to be virtuous, I'm going to go to confession, I'm going to do everything again to be better, all of our problems will go away overnight. And all of you people who are into, into distributism as being a, sol- a solution for e- economy, this is my number one answer to you people. Uh, as long as everyone is actually virtuous and honest in business, it doesn't matter, officially speaking, what form of economy or or business or government you have, everything then is oriented to how can I best serve God and my fellow man and love my fellow man as myself. If there's the phrase that if, if communism was run by angels, it'd be fine. But instead yeah. we try among men and we, we are, we have the stain of original sin. So why should we be surprised even when the most protected forms of government, like the United States form of government, these are very smart people who set up the government, looked at all the different forms that, that had, had failed before, and they set up a constitutional republic with checks and balances so that you couldn't just run wild with the mob mentality. You couldn't have, you know, all the excesses that happened, either with a king or, or democracy or whatnot. You still have to have virtue in society or the whole darn thing won't work. And Adam said it from day one. Um, this form of government, I'm paraphrasing this form of government is made for a moral religious people. And outside of that, it will fail catastrophically. And that's what we're seeing. And that's absolutely true. So yes, you're absolutely right. These conversations, I'm far less interested anymore in the conversations about, you know, capitalism, this distributism, that blah, blah, blah. You know, I'm that just, it's, it's not even, it's not even relevant anymore because you hit the nail on the head. The issue is the populace, the people, the morality of the people, the godlessness of the people. And this goes back to my theory of money that, you know, we are the gold. And so no matter what you do, no matter what you do, whether you have bitcoins or, or gold bullion or, you know, Federal Reserve notes, whatever it is, it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter as long as the people and the culture are depraved, you are going to have a corrupt monetary system. You're going to have a corrupt financial system. There's nothing you can do in terms of monetary theory, banking theory, anything else that's going to fix this because the problem is us, because the problem is the morality of the people who that, that the money is a pro a proxy for so you know and then the libertarians are saying get out of my bedroom and what it like you said earlier what i do behind closed doors doesn't matter actually it does it's everything's hanging on that everything is hanging upon what the people in a culture do when nobody's looking 
And now it's to the point it's so far gone that not only is everybody looking and we're, and people still commit crimes, but it's almost there's a there's a there's a sense of loving the fact that they're getting away with it, doing it in public and and committing crimes in public and getting away with it and just just luxuriating in it, relishing in it, rolling around in it like a damn hog. And you you think that there's that there's some technical thing that you can do with with the monetary system or with the banking system to fix any of that? Of course not. That's absolutely ridiculous. And so, you know, it's a it's a very interesting thought exercise at this time. But all it is is a thought exercise because all of these things are you can't implement them. You can't do them so long as the culture remains this way. And you keep mentioning that ultimately what we're, what's going to solve all this is the triumph of the Mac to the heart of Mary. And you make the comment that if I survive it, it probably will be something of that, that nature. I mean, it it wouldn't just be, um, it wouldn't just be Fatima or Akita or La Salette or (laughs) any number, Our Lady Good Success, any other uh, number of, 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 and I'm laughing because it's, you know, it's sad in a sense. I mean, you'd, to, to paraphrase a priest, you that to laugh or take take hostages, but uh, is it's not it's not positive news, and but at the same time it would be, I, I look forward with hope that if I'm if I have the opportunity to see that triumph, it's going to be an amazing time to see everything reborn again, and, and we already know how this is going to work. It's going to be reborn again through Christ. I mean, you have to put the old man of sin to death. And rise again with Christ, and what no better con- uh, contemplation of that in terms of time of the year than right now during Lent. That's the whole Indeed. idea of mortification, and you know Lent is the church year from from um, the end of Pentecost to or from the beginning of Advent to the end of Pentecost. It's, it's a microcosm of time. We're, we have to deny ourselves and put ourselves to death uh, in order to rise with Christ. And there's there's no avoiding there's no avoiding the passion of Christ. We either voluntarily submit to it and join ourselves to it here in this life, or we eternally pay for it in the next life. I'd rather do it in this world. Indeed. So, I mean, that sounds dour, but it, that, that is the path toward, you know, toward getting everything corrected. I mean, ultimately, uh, was it Gandhi who said, be the change you want to see in the world? Okay, so he wasn't Christian, but he doesn't mean he's not right. Get your spiritual house in order. That's the first step. You've got to be the example to everybody else. You've got to be that shining example of the truth to everybody else. If you're just a cesspool of Kennedyism, do you think you're going Mm -hmm. to draw anyone into the church? Exactly. And, you know, the other, the other point to make is, can you be, can you be a person who is violating the sixth commandment, but as long as you're on the political right, that somehow makes it okay. Um, and you can delude yourself into believing that that makes it okay as long as you're on the political right. No, I'm sorry. You, you, everyone, everyone needs to get squared away on these issues. And um, there's, you know, I, well, I voted for Trump and I've, I did this and I volunteer for that. But you still look at porn online. I mean, or you're still, you're still cheating on on your valid spouse or something like that or you're you're still contracepting well you're you're spinning your wheels my friends and the, the people I know with those ideas are about the third or fourth floor from the bottom of hell the only people below them are the priests and the bishops yeah yeah it. 
you mean you think that that's that's some sort of consolation you know well hell won't be quite so bad god just just think about what you're saying i didn't quite about what you're saying i didn't quite hit the bottom of hell yeah yeah i'm not i'm not the worst person in hell you know i'm not i'm not down in there with hitler or anything like that i'm just in i'm just in that that mid-range of hell to think 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 people about what you're saying think about what you're saying when you're saying you know you'll i choose my quote unquote husband over god and if if not doing x y and z with my husband means uh, if i have to choose between doing x y and z with my husband in hell then i choose and then i choose x y and z with my husband and i will go to hell and i choose hell oh my gosh you people uh, Father Z has a really, really good little mini meditation that he, you know, brings out and uses multiple times per year. And it is absolutely invaluable. And that is, you need to stop and think about what the first 10 seconds of hell will be like. You die, you go through your your particular judgment. Um, I had a priest tell me another very valuable thing about the particular judgment. You're not going to be arguing. You're not going to be litigating. Every human being at their po- at their particular judgment gets to say exactly one word, and that is the word yes, and that's at the end. And that yes is either you saying, yes, I am, I am coming to heaven with you, Lord, when he calls you into heaven, or, you know, going to pr- presumably almost everyone will go to purgatory first, but yes to that. Or our Lord saying that you have chosen damnation and your response to that will be yes. And then you will be in hell and think about what it will be like when, you know, your consciousness is in hell and the first 10 seconds of that. And you realize where you are, but more than realizing where you are, you realize that it will never, ever, ever end. Ever. Not only that, but you specifically chose it and it will have been revealed to you. And it's one of the biggest punishments of hell. It will be revealed to you for all eternity. Every opportunity you had during your entire life to yep. have earned grace and renounced yourself and turned toward God. The fires of hell are actually a mercy to distract They're you from mercy. that thought. Yep. Yep. I said and at the top of this podcast, this is going to be a, a bit of a dark one, a bit of a, a dour one. And, yeah, we went from shootings to, um, <laughs> to hell, Etern- eternal damnation, and and how many people are there? And that think about that the first ten seconds, it will never end. Every human being, you cannot tell yourself this lie that of soul annihilation. You cannot tell yourself this lie because it it is completely false. Every human being is immortal. Every human being will continue to exist. Nobody gets snuffed out of existence and nobody gets reincarnated or any of that crap. That's absolute garbage. When you're dead, that's it. Your soul is not annihilated. It will continue. God maintains the existence of every human soul for all eternity. And you say, well, why? Because if God were to snuff even one human being, out of existence, it would completely cheapen, degrade to the point of making utterly worthless every human life. If he even snuffed one human being out of existence and because he loves us 
and we are rational intellects created in his image and likeness, and he loves us, it is impossible for him to snuff anyone out of existence. It's morally impossible. And so you will, you will exist and be conscious of your existence and self-aware for all eternity. It will never end. You go either to heaven after probably a purgation or you will go to hell, period, full stop. And so will every other human being, every other human being, either heaven or hell, including your spouse, your children, your parents, your coworkers, people you pass on the street. That should be that in and of itself. If you believe that, that should animate you. That should fill you with some sort of a notion of care, concern, duty, um, charity. Um, and there's other, there's other ways to think about this too. Say you end up in heaven and your spouse ends up in hell. Your spouse will, not only will your spouse hate you and hate God for all eternity and spend all of it, all of eternity hating you. This is, this is another thing that people really hate to hear, but all of the people who end up in the beatific vision, um, because the people who are in hell and are damned are there because of God's perfect justice, people in the beatific vision will not mourn for the loss of the people that they knew and loved in this life who are in hell. Because think about it. If you're in the beatific vision, there is no mourning, obviously. You're glorifying the justice of God. You're glorifying the justice of God. And therefore the people that are in hell, including potentially your spouse, your parents, your children, your friends, et cetera, et cetera. People who right now in this moment, while we're in this veil of tears, while we're in the world, and these questions are still open that you love very, very, very much. If you end up in heaven and those people end up in hell, you will spend all of eternity um, glorifying God's justice manifested in the fact that those people are in fact in hell. Because if they're there, they deserve to be there. Frankly, everyone deserves to be there. Well, and um, you've mentioned before, and it, it bears repeating, there is no charity in hell from the, mm -hmm. the souls there toward each other or anybody else. But there is also no charity toward the souls in hell from anybody else either. And ultimately that's going to be from the souls in heaven because there won't be any after time uh, from any other location. But yeah, something to think about. So, so which, it which is something to think in. about. It is, it is something that can maybe help animate someone um, to do the right thing by their spouse, do the right thing by their children um, making the assumption that you make it and they don't, you can't, you know, you can't just adopt a, a position of complete passivity in these things. You should be animated in charity to do everything you can for these people. And if that, if that scares you now while we're here on earth and that's, and that fear motivates you, then that, that's a good thing and you should be motivated by it. And then just reiterating as super nerd just said, there's no charity in hell. So there's no sense of, you know, Oh, my husband and I love each other so much, we're willing to go to hell together because at least we'll be together. If you're in hell, you will hate, hate, probably with the most intense passion, second only to your hatred of God himself, will you hate your spouse? I was going to say, if you, if you honestly can, can utter the phrase that my husband and I love each other 
uh, so much that I'd rather be with them, be together with him in hell than what you're equally saying is we hate God so much. Yep. We'd rather yep. be with each other than God. And why do you hate God so much? For most people today, in the context of this, the reason is the reason they hate God is because God is perfect uh, truth, beauty, justice, and God is the law. And God is the one who is saying, you can't do these sex acts that you all enjoy doing. Um, he's the one saying to you, and he is the law saying, this hurts me. You can't do this because you're hurting yourself. You're hurting me. You're rejecting me when you do these things to each other, when you commit these sins, which are in fact against each other. You're hurting me. Why do you think sodomites hate God so much? Why do you think you have all these sodomite infiltrators into the church who are just filled with spite against God and his holy church and doing everything that they possibly can to destroy it? The reason is, is because God is the one who's saying that you are a filthy, disgusting, disgusting, wretched sinner when you commit these filthy, disgusting sins against nature that cry out to heaven for my vengeance. And they know, they know that this will never change. They know deep down that God is God. And so they are at war, war with him because he, he does not, cannot, and will never, will never ratify these things. So no, so as you see right now, it's happening in Germany. It's happening with, you know, Supich in Chicago and Tobin in, New, in Newark and all of these, these horrible, horrible infiltrators who are in the church. They are, they are at war with the church. They're trying to tear down and say, well, you know, the paradigm is shifting and the church is now, you know, opening itself up to new paradigms. This, this is the manifestation of, of the, the great quote by Father Linus Clovis that right now the, the true church and the anti-church are occupying the same liturgical, juridical, and sacramental space. Um, and you have to remember that. There is no paradigm shift, and these, these filthy, disgusting, most these men, these prelates especially, are at war with God and his church because God and his church will never, ever ratify their disgusting, filthy sexual perversions. And they know it. And on that positive note, I think we've got a podcast. On that lighthearted. (laughs) Oh, good grief. Well, folks, you asked for it. You asked for longer episodes. So there it was. Well, Well, this is the dark one. I don't know. Maybe we should... Maybe we should put dark in the title of this one somehow. So I'm sure we'll come up with an appropriate title. I'm sure we will. (laughs) If you have feedback for the Barnhart podcast, the email address for feedback, comments, suggestions, ideas, happy stories is podcast at barnhart.biz. And Benefactor Masses, once more, um, seven days a week, days that end in Y, Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, Saturday, Sunday. Please remember the priests that offer those Masses in your prayers during the week. Please unite yourself to these Masses. It's for you. It's for the salvation of your souls. Certainly also for your earthly intentions, but, you know, I have an agreement with God, and obviously the highest priority is just getting people, getting y'all to heaven, getting all of us to heaven, no matter what, so that uh, we can all be there together and not be um, hating each other and shaking our fists at each other. We'll all get to know each other more incredibly than, than any friendship could ever be on this earth. And um, I, I hope I make it and I hope to see all of you all there in heaven someday. 
The Barnhart Podcast is a production of Super Nerd Media. If you found something of value in this or previous episodes and would like to return some value, please visit supernerdmedia.com slash donate for more details. And that's what Arthur did. Thank you very much for your support. Matthew 1720 Initiative, of course, the way I do it, and you can feel free to modify this as um, your physical condition, age, and your um, your moral certainty about what the situation in the church is, or lack of moral certainty for that matter. But my Matthew 1720 intention is full, complete, total fasting, just a little bit of coffee on uh, Tuesdays and Fridays are my usual day. So let's call it two days a week. Um, and this is this is how I state the Matthew 1720 intention, um, especially in my prayers after mass every day that Bergoglio be publicly recognized and removed as anti-Pope and that his entire anti-papacy be legally nullified, that Pope Benedict XVI Ratzinger be publicly recognized as as being the one and only living Pope and having been so all along, that Jorge Bergoglio repent, revert to Catholicism, die in a state of grace and achieve the beatific vision, and that Pope Benedict XVI Ratzinger repent of what he has done, die in a state of grace, and achieve the beatific vision. Nothing less than that is a complete resolution to this problem. So that's how I pray the Matthew 17:20 intention initiative. Uh, please join me in that. And other than that, once again, just intense gratitude to one and all, especially to you, super nerd. I know you've had... Um, a busy, a busy past month or so, starting a new job, all kinds of things going on. And I appreciate your flexibility as always and your time dedication to this. Thank you so much. Be assured that you are one of the, one of the daily top prayer intentions for me every day after mass and in my rosary. I greatly appreciate it. And, um, I don't know what else to say about that. <laughs> you caught me a little speechless on that one. Um, so I guess until next week. And um, last time we did a show this long-ish, uh, we ended up uh, skipping a week. But I don't think that's going to be the case. This, I hope not. Um, I don't just, think so. I think... <laughs> I know that I know that my schedule has been a little bit strange for the month of February and it's going to go back to being normal in the first in the first week of March. And I think I hope that you're getting settled into your your new job and everything. So I think we'll we'll be able to settle back in where it's just a lot easier for both of us to to coordinate and get something get a time window that works very well for both of us. So I was going to say we'll, the last, we'll, the last time we had a show this long, I, I made the tongue in cheek uh, comment about it being a down payment toward missing a week. And I, I I'm not anticipating it this time, but, um, it, knock it, on, it, it <laughs> no, fa what would father Ripperger say? See, what would father Ripperger say? He would say, you can't say or think any of those silly superstitious things. So I withdraw, I withdraw. I abandon both of us, sir, to the divine providence and ladies and gentlemen, we will be back with, what is this episode 47 or eight? This one's 47, I think. This one's 47. We will be back with episode 48 in, in the perfect time of the divine providence. And until then, I am Super Nerd. And I'm Anne. Thanks, guys. God bless. 